This is Radio Orbit, exploring the secrets of everything on KOPN, Columbia.
good morning to you, wherever you might be. This is Mike Hagan, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. And you're listening to it right now, uh, coming to you for the next three hours, Radio Orbit. And this is Mike Hagan. And I'm totally wired. I'm on sort of an endorphin high because I've been in Massachusetts for the last five days at the Bioneers by the Bay Conference, which I was uh, fortunate enough to uh, co-host the entire webcast and podcast with my friend Joanna Harcourt-Smith. And we did 16 interviews in three days. And it was a whirlwind of information and uh, just a wonderful, thrilling experience with all kinds of people that uh, I felt uh, just so fortunate to be able to meet and talk with. And I'll be sharing a lot of that stuff with you over the next few weeks. I'm going to play a little bit here, a little bit there. Tonight we will probably uh, not do that, though. I've got to get that stuff ready. And we have a live interview tonight with... Sir Charles Schultz. That's right, I said Sir Charles Schultz. He is a, we'll have to ask him to clarify this, but I believe he is a, uh, a knight uh, in England and has been knighted by the Queen. And he is an expert on the planet Mars. He also knows a lot about alternative energy and uh, space travel, this sort of thing. So we'll be talking with Sir Charles in just about, oh, 55 minutes or so. And before that, I'll tell you, uh, I'm just going to have to tell you some of the stuff that happened this weekend. It was great, really cool stuff. All right, so yeah, so I went to Massachusetts on Thursday. And I got in there uh, Thursday afternoon, and I met with Joanna Harcourt-Smith, the former Joanna Leary, Timothy Leary's former wife. Uh, That was a trip, no pun intended. And we got along real well right off the bat. We've sort of been corresponding via email, and, you know, she's been on the program here before, and we've become friends over the last few months. But anyway, that was the first time I met Joanna in person, and it was a pleasure. And we worked together all weekend, and uh, it was just an absolute pleasure working with her. Anyway, met uh, some other people there early on, and we began the conference on Friday morning. And there were... Lots and lots of different people there. Like I said, there were we did 15 different interviews. I mean, 16 interviews actually in uh, in three days. And a lot of that stuff I'm going to play here on the program. The woman who opened the uh, uh, who opened the conference, her name is Julia Butterfly Hill, and her her name may be familiar to some of you, especially some of you out there that consider yourselves environmentalists, quote unquote, or something like that. But uh, Julia, her story begins in 1997 uh, in California where she sort of single-handedly was taking on a logging company that was trying to cut down an old-growth redwood forest in Northern California. And uh, what she did was just climbed one of the trees. Uh, She sort of got prepared and climbed one of the trees and and literally uh, went up the giant redwood tree. Okay, so that's no big deal. Well, she stayed there for 740 days. She lived in the tree for two years and never left the tree. And it is an amazing story. And uh, quite frankly, I didn't uh, I didn't really jive with some of the other stuff that she was talking about, <laughs> but uh, but her story uh, alone of what happened in California is just uh, a, a heartfelt, uh, amazing story of human uh, accomplishment and individual uh, uh, achievement, 
really shows you what, what one person can do. I mean, the, the forest was saved, uh, and there were attempts on her life. Uh, she lived through uh, one of the worst winters in Northern California history uh, and never left this tree. And it's an amazing story. So she started out the whole deal, and the way it worked was <clears throat> the people would present they would present their uh, their stories or whatever they were presenting, and, and it covered <clears throat> a wide-ranging number of topics, everything from sustainable living and how to grow your own shiitake mushrooms <laughs> from coffee grounds and things like that uh, to uh, alternative energy, <clears throat> peak oil, uh, Gnosticism. John Lash, a guy uh, who will be on this program, was absolutely stunning and someone who is hacking at the roots of evil, in my opinion, not the branches. And I appreciate a great deal what John is doing. Anyway, he was amazing. Uh, we talked about uh, alternative energy. Uh, all kinds of different things. Health. And uh, i trying to think of what uh, Juliet Shore was talking about. Children. She's written a wonderful book, Juliet Shore, called The Commercialization of Children. And we talked about that book. But anyway, lots and lots of great stuff uh, that went on there. The most, uh, one of the most amazing parts of the conference was then the way it ended. And I won't tell you much more about In Between because I'm going to play a lot of that stuff for you. But I have to tell you how they finished. Uh, but anyway, let me finish my thoughts. So, so anyway, they would present their things and then afterwards they would rush them up to the media room and that's where we were and then we would interview them after their presentations and it, uh, it worked out really well and we had some really cool technology that we were able to use uh, the interviews were up on the web within five minutes or so after they were done and uh, everything was uh, podcast and if you're interested in listening to any of that stuff you can listen to it before I play it here and all you have to do is go to uh, connectingforchange.org connectingforchange.org and I'll put a link up on Radio Orbit as well uh, for that and I've got another announcement that I should make right now actually uh, as since we're talking about the website so let me give out my contact information real quick uh, www.radioorbit.com r-e-d-i-o-r-b-i-t dot com email orbitradio at aol.com and I've got a little uh, experiment that I'm working on, and I need input from the listeners. So uh, I take a deep breath, and I release the information. All right, go to Mike Hagan, M-I-K-E-H-A-G-A-N.com. This is the prototype for the new website. Not really ready to fully launch yet, but I wanted to announce it here locally before I tell anybody else about it. And I'd like anybody who's interested to go check it out and send me email and tell me what's wrong, tell me what it looks like, tell me if it loads good in your browser, tell me if uh, you like it. In general. I mean, just give me uh, your uh, criticisms, uh, advice, whatever. I'd be glad to hear. But uh, I'm really, really looking for the input from the listeners on, on this new website as we, as we develop it. So anyway, Mike Hagan, H-A-G-A-N.com. And I'd appreciate your comments, all right? Okay, so anyway, I'll finish up and then we'll do a song here real fast. But uh, the way this conference ended was a 
performance uh, presentation. It was sort of a, a performance piece by a woman whose name is Lisa Harrow. And Lisa Harrow is one of the most accomplished actresses on the planet, although maybe not well-known in this country. She's a Shakespearean actress uh, who um, began with the Royal Shakespeare Company in London many, many years ago and has played major roles in major theaters all around the world uh, in Shakespearean and other literature. She's absolutely fantastic and has this amazing voice. Uh, and so anyway, she is married to a man whose name is Roger Payne. And Roger Payne is one of the early dolphin and whale researchers, uh, primarily whales, actually. And in fact, uh, Roger Payne is credited as the man who discovered uh, the whale song and recognized that this was uh, something significant and in fact language and uh, he is, was, one, was one of the pioneers in whale research and a colleague and peer and contemporary of John Lilly uh, who I am such a fan of so I was really pleased uh, to get a chance to speak with John uh, I mean with, um, uh, with Dr. Payne as well so anyway what Lisa and Roger did was a performance piece that was called Letters from Copernicus. And it was absolutely brilliant. It was one of the most moving pieces I've ever seen and heard. And I hopefully will be able to present that on the program at some point, the actual uh, piece itself, although uh, there's some question as to whether it's... Uh, something that I can do legally as of yet without their permission, but I will uh, make an attempt to get their permission. And anyway, we had a chance to interview them after their presentation, and it was uh, one of the most uh, thrilling interviews, although short, uh, that I've done in my uh, sort of brief radio career. But anyway, the Bioneers by the Bay Conference, it was just a great experience for me, and I hope to share a lot of it with you guys in the next few weeks. And... Uh, you can check out uh, just what that whole thing is about at uh, bioneers.org, B-I-O-N-E-E-R-S.org. And this was the first year that the uh, Bioneers by the Bay conference was held. It was a satellite conference that was done in cooperation with the primary Bioneers conference, which goes on in San Rafael, California, every uh, October and has been now for some 16 years. But this was the first year that we had a satellite conference uh, on the East Coast, and it was at the University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth. It was wonderfully done, and uh, I give a lot of credit to the Marion Institute uh, for putting it all together and making it happen. They're doing wonderful things up there in uh, uh, in the uh, the Boston and northeast area and around the world obviously now so anyway thanks to the Marion Institute thanks to Joanna for letting me be a part of it uh, uh, everybody that I met there uh, was a wonderful experience and I feel very lucky and uh, and happy to have been a part of it so thanks uh, to everybody involved alright this is Mike and we're going to play a little bit of music here and we'll come back in just a few and talk about some stories and do space weather even though I'm completely unprepared for uh, the show tonight. Uh, I'm relatively prepared for our interview, but other than that, I don't have much. I've been traveling all day and uh, flew in from Boston this afternoon and then got to St. Louis at about 6 o'clock and uh, didn't get out of there until close to 7. Got in the car, 
drove all the way back to Rochport and spent about 15 minutes with my wife and sleeping son, got back in the car and drove down here to the radio station to do the show. So I'll uh, try to keep it together in the meantime, tragically hip on KOPN Radio Orbit. This is Silver Jet. That's what I was doing all day today. Back in a minute, this is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia.
this is a program announcement. Woodlands, Jesse, Cole, Young, Underwire. This program is brought to you by Leslie's support and donations from Woodlands Brains Lounge. Partner with events with Jesse, Jessica, Jess. Jessica Cole, Young, October 27, Stillville, Missouri. Jessica Cole, Young has dedicated his life to her life to giving back to the world. He, sorry, he lives in and he has programs on behalf of American Indians to dream world school. He has also prison, sentenced prison and has used soldiers such as for his contact. He has always been held event as much as information available at wildwoodsprings.com. 573-775-2400. Ends October 26, 2005. All right. Thank you, Matt. That's wildwoodspringslodge.com or 573-775-2400. All right. This is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia. And uh, what's next? What should we talk about here? Hmm. Sir Charles. It's going to be an interesting show tonight. Got lots of questions about Mars. And uh, it's sort of a, a cool night anyway out there. It's a full moon or very close to a full moon. I haven't actually checked the the the, uh, uh, the calendar, my sky chart, to find out if it actually is a full moon right now or not. But I know it's very close to it, either either last night or tonight, uh, possibly sometime this morning. But uh, at any rate, full moon, and uh, so we're going to talk about space tonight. We're going to talk about uh, the stars, and we're going to talk about Mars. So uh, that's called coming up with uh, with Sir Charles Schultz. And you can check him out actually on the web at www.xenotech, X-E-N-O-T-E-C-H, dot org. And I, I take that back. I think it's xenotech.com. I need to verify that. Let's see here. Uh, yeah, xenotech. I, actually, I think it is actually xenotech.org. Let's see here. Well, I don't know there it is. Anyway, I need to figure out the website. I suppose I should do that before I start a program. Anyway, okay, so... Uh, all right, check this out. We'll do space weather in a minute, but uh, I want to read this story real quick. It says, uh, this is from... Uh, from New Delhi, actually, from an Indian news source, but it's a story about NASA. And the story says, uh, NASA goes to the sun to, pre to predict quake. And let me read this for you after I do one more thing here on the old computer. All right, uh, New Delhi. It may not be long before scientists start tracking sunspots to predict earthquakes. 
some hours before they hit seismologically active areas. Uh, and a JNU professor and his team would be behind the scenes. The NASA and, uh, the NASA and European Geosciences Union have already put their stamp of approval on the sunspot hypothesis. Oh, boy. Lucky them. I guess that makes it legitimate. Huh? If NASA puts their, puts their stamp of approval, it must be successful. It must be a great idea. Uh, at any rate, this is one that they should have figured out a long time ago. But anyway, uh, uh, these changes are not the cause of the quake, but they can trigger quakes. <laughs> Listen to this. You're not even going to believe this. <clears throat> these changes are not the cause of the quake, but they can trigger quakes in areas where there are active faults. This theory is a definite development in the field of earthquake prediction, said Samitria Mukherjee, associate professor at the School of Environmental Sciences at the Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi. NASA has allowed Mujahid's team access to their data free of cost to work on the theory. These changes take place about 24 to 36 hours before the earthquake, so they can definitely help predict it, he said. For instance, such a change had occurred on January 24th, 2001, and two days later, uh, an earthquake measuring 7.9 on the Richter scale devastated Gujarat. Altogether, 65 earthquakes were registered across the world on that day. Uh, explaining the theory, the professor says that what happens essentially is an energy mass from the outer periphery of sunspots is directed towards the Earth. This disturbs the magnetic field of the Earth and causes changes in the atmosphere, ionosphere, and geosphere. I'm going to read that one more time. And if you've been listening to this program for the last year and a half, what have we been telling you about the sun? That everything the sun does affects everything in this system. It is the heart. It is 99.9% it is of all of the mass and energy in the entire solar system. Any changes on the sun have profound effects on all bodies, all life forms, all uh, matter in the solar system. Explaining the theory, I'll read it again. The professor says that what happens essentially is an energy mass from the outer periphery of sunspots is directed towards the Earth. This disturbs the magnetic field of the Earth, causes changes in the atmosphere, the ionosphere, and the geosphere. Alright, so I'll translate. It means that when things happen on the sun, it affects things here on Earth. Now listen to the, the I'm going to repeat a, a phrase from the earlier, uh, from an earlier paragraph too, and you'll find out how silly these scientists sound sometimes, but it usually just flies right by. All right, the first part of the sentence says this: These changes on the sun are not the cause of the quake, comma, but they can trigger quakes in areas where there are active faults. What is he talking about? These changes are not the cause of the quake. Okay, that says that they don't cause the quake. And then the next part of the sentence says, but they can trigger quakes. Well, what does trigger quakes mean? It means it causes the quake. So it's, it's a completely uh, uh, bizarre sentence. And maybe it's due to translation, and I'll give them the benefit of the doubt, but it sounds typical of uh, stuff that comes out of uh, organizations like NASA. At any rate... The geniuses have figured out that the sun actually affects the planet. So, there you have it. What else? Oh, you know, I, I mentioned geosciences. There, uh, I, I know I have one listener in particular and a, and a few others that are interested in this debate between uh, creationism 
or intelligent design as it's now been uh, made over and evolution well if you want to end that debate go look at the work of Dr. Lynn Margulis M-A-R-G-U-L-I-S and she is a distinguished professor in the department of geosciences at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst I spent time speaking with her this weekend and she's amazing and the work that she's done ends the debate and it's no longer speculation and I'm not going to get into it on the program here go look up Lynn Margolis and and the, the pictures are worth a thousand words and Lynn has in my opinion definitively definitively proved that evolution is in process it is ongoing and we can watch it and she showed us all this weekend uh, with live uh, with with live organisms as they evolved and we watched it all on videotape and it was absolutely astonishing to see what this woman has done so uh, for all of you out there that are interested in uh, intelligent design slash creationism versus evolution uh, for anybody who's really going to be reasonable about this look at the work of Lynn Margulis and then uh, if you can't figure out what's going on from that then I think that you need to take the blinders off alright this is Mike we're going to take one more music break here we'll come back and do a quick space weather and uh, uh, actually let's do space weather and then we'll take a break and we'll come up uh, come back with uh, uh, with Sir Charles Schultz at the top of the hour all right. Um, interestingly, uh, in space weather tonight, uh, if you go outside, Mars is right outside uh, or right next to the moon tonight. If you're looking for Mars, it's right beside the moon. If you go out uh, any time after sunset tonight, and in fact around 9.30 would have been really good, uh, but look to the east and you'll see Mars and the moon. They would have been rising together earlier, uh, but they're a beautiful pair tonight. And it's very fitting because uh, we're doing the show basically on Mars tonight. And uh, there's another um, thing that I'll mention about the moon. According to certain folklore, the October full moon, they call a hunter's moon. Uh, sometimes they call it a blood moon as well. It gets its name uh, from, from hunters who tracked and killed their, uh, their prey by the, by the light of the autumn moon. And they would stockpile food and uh, uh, supplies for the winter that was upcoming and the hunter's moon is today tonight full moon October 17th so creatures of the forest run for your lives the hunters will be out looking for you tonight uh, let's see. There was actually part of a lunar eclipse, actually, as well, with the with the uh, hunter's moon tonight. Uh, if you're interested in any of this stuff, uh, go check out spaceweather.com, or always go to cyberspaceorbit.com, my good friend Kent Stedman's site, who is always on top of this stuff. Uh, the sun uh, has been relatively inactive; had a couple of big prominences, uh, prominences the other day, uh, but nothing of note uh, recently, at least. And as we've seen, though. The sun can do strange things, and it can do it unexpectedly. And every day, every minute, every hour brings that possibility. So that's about it for now. Uh, solar wind, 
about average 350 kilometers a second. Proton count's not too high. Sunspots, not a lot of them. There's one sort of grouping, number 815, has a little bit of potential, but nothing really of note. So things, as far as we know, pretty calm in the skies above our heads. And let's hope it stays that way for a little while. What else are we going to do here? All right, how about a little bit of music? What I got for you? Hmm, nothing there. As you can tell, I really wasn't very prepared because I'm just sort of picking music as we go here. And let's see. How about Moonrise Nocturne? Mantwin Bard. Radio Orbit, back in a few. Mantwin Bard, Moonlight Nocturne on KOPN's Radio Orbit.
KOPN Radio Orbit. You're listening to it. This is Mike Hagan. And uh, I've been looking for one other story that I wanted to talk with you about before we get into the uh, the whole Mars conversation. But you guys know what a enthusiast I am of the World Wide Web. And uh, someone who uh, doesn't think that it's a trivial thing. And I've been talking over the last couple of weeks about some of the things that are happening with the web and with uh, things like entire cities being offered blankets of free wireless broad broadband uh, capabilities Google for example uh, offering San Francisco the city of San Francisco to blanket the entire town the entire city of San Francisco with wireless Wi-Fi uh, internet access for free for anybody that's got Wi-Fi access so uh, if that happens in San Francisco, you can bet it's going to spread around the rest of the country. And so we have that to look forward to. And then right after that, I came up with a story a couple of days ago that says all human life is indexed on the web. Search engines are changing the face of business forever. And this is actually from a business uh, section of, I forget what newspaper, but uh, listen to, to what, what this uh, gentleman writes, Tony Glover. The Library of Alexandria was the first time in humanity uh, that uh, man attempted to bring all human knowledge together in one place at one time. Our latest attempt? Google. According to Brewster Colley, entrepreneur and founder of the Internet Archive, search technology is still in its infancy, but it will revolutionize the computer industry and change our world as radically as the PC did a, year, uh, a generation ago. The stock market hype surrounding the world's leading search engine Google has obscured the fact that Silicon Valley's rising stars only scratch the surface of a technology that is about to transform nearly everything we do. Entertainment, publishing, and shopping will change forever. Now, this is where these guys miss the boat, but at any rate... Uh, Search is smack in the middle of the web's second coming, a resurgence driven by companies like Google, eBay, Amazon, Yahoo, Microsoft, I would add AOL. I write John Battelle, co-founding editor of Wired Magazine in his book Search, how Google and its rivals rewrote the rules of business and transform our culture. Battelle quotes Yudi Manber, executive, uh, chief executive of Amazon, uh, their A9.com search engine says, search is a problem about 5% solved. When the problem is fully solved, Battelle predicts an eerie future. Search may well lead to the creation of HAL, the intelligent but creepy computer doppelganger of Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Or if that possibility doesn't keep you up at night, think of search as the application that lays the foundation for Skynet, the AI 
uh, artificial intelligence program that takes over the world as imagined in the Terminator films or the equally dystopian Matrix trilogy. Uh, but well before any of these sci-fi scenarios emerge, search technology will revolutionize the retail, publishing, advertising, media, etc., etc., etc. So, yeah, the, the, the web becoming more and more a part of the world around us and as it becomes more and more accessible, as, as the uh, rates of information transfer increase, as, as uh, bandwidth increases and increases, which, is, which, which it is poised to do uh, more and more and more, uh, these things are going to become more and more profound. And I'm not sure anybody really knows where it's going, but it is amazing uh, to be watching the level uh, of advance of the technology, not just the technology itself, but watching the level uh, of uh, the rapidity of increase. In other words, the technology is increasing exponentially, but so is the rate at which it's being developed. And uh, Ray Kurzweil... Uh, talks a lot about this uh, this increasing rate of advancement and uh, the question is where does that where does that all end up and it's a, a question that has not uh, yet been resolved so anyway okay we'll do a uh, We'll do a quick story here on Mars, and then we'll come back with our guest, uh, Sir Charles Schultz, one of the uh, one of the most expert uh, men on the planet with regard to that particular planet, one that's been uh, uh, of interest to people on Earth for many, many years. There's something special about Mars, I think, because out of all the planets in our solar system, it seems that uh, historically and even to this day, we have a tremendous amount of interest in Mars. And uh, speaking of interesting, listen to this story. This comes from Fizzorg.com. has to do with some recent imagery from Mars. It starts out, Conspicuous trains of debris in valleys, arcs of debris on steep slopes and other features far from the polar ice caps bear striking similarities to glacial landscapes of Earth, says Brown University's James Head III. When combined with the latest climate models and orbital calculations from Mars, the geological features make a compelling case for Mars having ongoing climate shifts that allow ice to leave the poles and accumulate at lower latitudes. Sounds familiar. That's what's going to happen in northern Europe and, uh, uh, and, and Maine when the Gulf Stream shuts down, which is happening now as we speak. Uh, the exciting thing is a real convergence of these things, said Head, who presented the latest Mars climate discoveries on Sunday, the 16th of October, at the annual meeting of Geological Society of America uh, in Salt Lake City. For decades, people have been saying that deposits at mid- and equatorial latitudes look like they are ice-created, said Head, but without better images, elevation data, and some way of explaining it, ice outside of Mars' polar region was a hard sell. Uh, new high-resolution uh, images, however, now from the Mars Odyssey spacecraft's thermal emissions imaging system, combined with images from Mars Global, uh, Global Surveyor, spacecraft's Mars Orbiter Camera, and Mars Orbiter Laser Altimeter, can be compared directly with glacial, glacier, glacier features in mountain and polar regions of Earth. The lightnesses are hard to ignore. So uh, we won't uh, continue that story too much further, but it is... Um, Available on the web if, if somebody's interested in uh, checking it out. You can find that at physorg.com and just look for Mars. It is uh, 
a pretty interesting story. So we will uh, play one more bit of music here, and then we'll come back with our guest, Sir Charles Schultz, and we will talk about Mars, and we will talk about uh, uh, some of these strange and interesting things that are happening on that planet, and we'll talk about the history, and we'll ask him some questions about why Mars has always been uh, of such interest uh, to us. Uh, but before that, we will listen to uh, The Flaming Lips. And this is called Life on Mars. This is Mike, Radio Orbit, KOPN. We'll be back in just a minute with Sir Charles Schultz. We'll be talking about Mars, among other things. And uh, to get a head start, you can check out his work at www. <laughs> you can tell I've been on an airplane all day. Uh, www.xenotechresearch.com. And uh, I'll spell that one more time. It's X-E-N-O-T-E-C-H research.com. Xenotechresearch.com. And much of the information that we'll be discussing is, uh, can be gleaned from Sir Charles's website. And uh, there's also some interesting imagery there that we may reference. So that might be a good one to get up on your, uh, on your screens and follow along with us, okay? All right, so uh, one more time, Mike, Radio Orbit, Life on Mars, David Bowie. It's a god-awful small affair. That was a pretty good joke, huh? was a mousey But her mommy is yelling no. And her daddy has told her to go. But her friend is nowhere to be seen. Now she walks through her sunken dream. To the seat with the clearest view And she's hooked to the silver screen But the film is a sad thing for For she's lived it ten times or more She could spit in the eyes of fools As they ask her to focus on
All right. That was David Bowie from Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. That was Life on Mars. And this is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia. And speaking of Mars, that's exactly what we're going to do for the next couple hours with my guest tonight. His name is Sir Charles Schultz. He's one of the most educated men around when it comes to our uh, neighboring red planet. And we're going to waste no time, bring him right on the air and uh, say hello to Sir Charles. And then we'll have him do a little bit of an introduction for himself. Hi, Sir Charles. How are you? Well, doing very well. Thank you for having me on the show, Mike. Thank you very much for taking the time out of your evening. I know you're on the East Coast over there in Orlando, Florida, or thereabouts, I think. And uh, it's uh, a little bit later even than it is here. So we thank you for staying up in the middle of the night to spend time with us. Certainly. All right. Well, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself first and uh, how you got so interested in the planet Mars, maybe a little bit about what you do at Xenotech, and, uh, and then we'll go from there. Well, my fascination with the planet Mars, I think, was pretty much the same as everyone's over the years. A lot of my work was in research involving not only chemistry and geology, but for the most part, aerospace. And it seems like a rather diverse mixture of fields. But the things that you learn in one field generally have applications in many other fields. And astronomy certainly has direct applications in aerospace. And I worked for a number of years in defense and weapons systems. Okay. Um, I work here in Xenotech Research. It's mostly in robotics and artificial intelligence research. Over the last uh, year and a half, I've been analyzing the data from the Mars rovers. Because it started as an attempt to provide a system of uh, a rover and a diorama that students and schools could use over the Internet so that they could run their own missions in simulation. Awesome. And, of course, we wanted to make this as realistic as possible. And so that's when the analysis of the data began. Okay, and when, when about, what, give me a time frame for when that was. Well, that was a year and a half ago, right at the beginning of 2004. When the images from the rovers began to come in, we started looking at the format of the images, the, uh, the look and the feel of the images. We wanted to make our recreation as realistic as possible. Hmm. And, of course, as we started looking at the microscopic data, we saw things right away that I recognized as fossils because one of my first interests was geology and fossils. Collecting. All right, so that's sort of one of the reasons why why you've been why the research didn't stop. It seems like you sort of got into it uh, for other reasons, then spotted some things that, that interested you, and then you decided to to, uh, to continue the research. Well, that's correct. Some of the things that I found seemed so amazing and so unusual that there was no way that I could stop looking and analyzing. And many of the things that were so interesting bore out some information that I wrote in an article in 1992 about Mars. Um, a lot of the work that I had done was based on some of the research by a fellow by the name of Thomas Gold. And he's a man who did research with Cornell University and previously did research in petroleum. Huh. The question he asked was, where does petroleum come from? Because he didn't believe it was a fossil fuel. Okay. And he found a great deal of evidence that petroleum was formed inside the Earth. Well, some of his work had direct applications to the research I was doing when I wrote an article about Mars. Four years after the article, they found the Martian meteorite H84001 and said that they had discovered what appeared to be microfossils. And in yes. their findings, they confirmed many of the things I wrote about in my article. So I was greatly encouraged by that. I kept my interest up ever since. Yeah, I remember when they found that, uh, that fossil and there was a tremendous amount of debate over it. And in fact, it went on for, uh, for quite a long time. And in fact... Uh, I do believe that it was sort of agreed upon finally that, that and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it was really quiet if I remember. It never made, made big news. What, what was the eventual outcome with that? 
Well, in fact, they did actually have a headline that, that said, like on Mars, but afterwards they retracted. Right. And, and it followed the same sort of path that the Viking findings yes. followed back in 1976. I was going to ask you about that. Good. Okay. Well, I can give you a quick recap. I know a lot of people aren't familiar with it. The Viking landers, there was a pair of them that was sent to Mars in 1975, and they landed in 1976 in two different regions of the planet that were similar, Utopia, Planitia, and Crisis, Planitia. And both landers went down with identical sets of hardware. Um, they carried an experiment called the Labeled Release Experiment. And the way it works is there was a radioactive material, and it was used to construct food and bacteria that would consume food would give off radioactive gas okay. that could be measured. So with a very simple piece of equipment, you could tell if there was some sort of biological activity. Well, the first sample of soil that was placed in the chamber produced what appeared to be biological action. Okay. They then cleared the chamber, got a second sample, and heated it up to 165 degrees centigrade mm -hmm. in the idea that they would be sterilizing that soil. Right. When they placed it in the chamber, it did not produce a reaction. So apparently whatever was in the soil had been killed. Oh, my God. This happened in both landers. Really? So it... Now, what's interesting is, oh, yeah, absolutely, they had what appeared to be positive results. Mm. And it's still being debated today. What's most interesting is they discounted the findings using a device that actually wasn't capable of locating organic molecules. Hmm. What's and the... nobody knows why they've done that. Yeah, now, I was going to say, what's the logic? It was called the... Uh, Oh, I don't know what the logic was behind it, but here's another interesting bit of information that generally isn't known. There was another experiment called pyrolytic release, and basically what it means is you heat a sample up and see what comes out of it. Mm -hmm. The pyrolytic release experiment showed organic material in seven of the nine samples it tested. And again, this was from the Viking probes. That's correct, Viking in 1976. And the project continued on for a couple of years because the, the uh, orbiters and landers remained active for quite a period of time before they finally went silent. Now we have the Martian meteorite, which comes along, and its analysis in 1996 indicates what appears to be microscopic fossils. And they also had some chemical traces and some physical traces. These two were discounted. But there is a single thing that it all goes back to, and this is they decided that Mars was dry as the moon 40 years ago, and they've never swerved from that opinion. Right. And it is indeed an opinion because it was not based on any scientific instrumentation. Why? Well, I guess we, we, we won't go there quite yet. Um, and I tell you what, I am having a little bit of trouble with the phone. I think we can get a little bit of a connection uh, that's better than the one that we have, and I want to make sure we have a real good connection for, uh, for the majority of the show. So I tell you what, I'm going to do one more uh, quick piece of music, and we're going to uh, come back and uh, have Sir Charles uh, back with us in just a moment. It will only take me a minute to do this, and in the meantime, we'll listen to a little bit more Mars. Uh, Mars music. This is uh, the Dandy Warhols, and we'll be back in again just a moment with uh, with Sir Charles Schultz from XenotechResearch.com, and we're talking about Mars tonight, and we've got a lot to talk about. So stick around. We'll be back in just a few minutes.
right, the Dandy Warhols. That's from uh, Auditorium or Warlords of Mars. And this is Mike, you listen to Radio Orbit. So let's get right back to it with my guest, Sir Charles Schultz. Uh, sorry about the little technical difficulty there. We're doing the best we can, and uh, let's just move right along, Sir Charles. So, okay, we've talked a little bit about why you've been researching Mars. Uh, we're going to get much further into that when we talk about what you found. Um, we know a little bit about your background, which sort of qualifies you to do this, uh, and people who are interested in your background uh, can go to the website and learn more about you. Um, let's talk a little bit about the sources of information again, just so people are clear on where, uh, where the information is coming from. Okay, very well. All of the information that I use in my research comes from NASA primarily, in the Jet Propulsion Labs. All of the backup information comes primarily from scientific uh, institutions such as universities and research centers. Okay. Um, all of the conclusions that I draw fall within the laws of physics. So I'm not going to promote, promote any idea that is cranky or weird or outside of the realms of physics, chemistry, and, and the things that we know that work. And this is a big difference in the work that I do compared to a lot of other people who promote findings on Mars. Okay. So it's very important important to me that you can verify all of the material that I put forward, and that's what I've tried to do with my, my website. All right, great. Well, that's encouraging, and I know that uh, these days uh, it's one of the most difficult things to do. We have a tremendous amount of information on the web at our fingertips, but uh, the challenge then becomes to be able to discern the wheat from the chaff sort of thing, and so I'm glad that we're able to document and, uh, and back up your findings. Now, in uh, terms of the research that I've been doing, most of it focuses on the conditions on the surface of Mars, and the findings show that what NASA has promoted as a model for the planet for the last 40 years is incorrect. Uh, based on images that came back from some of the uh, spacecraft they sent to Mars earlier, uh, uh, they sent pictures back, and in those pictures, they saw what appeared to be a dry, barren world that had craters very much like the moon. And the most important of those spacecraft were Mariner 6, seven and four and they sent back images of Mars that looked like the moon and so based on an opinion they said well it looks like the moon it must be as dry as the moon okay. and that myth has persisted for 40 years now yeah you know I actually remember that I grew up uh, uh, I was born in the in the mid 60s and I was just fascinated with space travel and the moon landings and all that so the moon uh, the first moon landing happened when I was five years old and very impressionable and I watched it on TV and it was something that uh, really stuck with me and uh, I was very interested in, in in all of this stuff and and I remember um, I actually sort of remember in hindsight that the Mariner imagery was actually to me once it was expanded and and sort of released to the public was actually much more astonishing to me than than even the Viking imagery was. Well, a lot of the Mariner images showed us things that we absolutely didn't expect. Up until Mariner, people truly had very little idea of what the planet Mars was like. In fact, at the time, they still thought that Venus might be covered with jungles or oceans because all that they ever saw was cloud tops. So we really didn't know a great deal about the solar system at the time that the Mariners were flying about the solar system. And it's only with landers, uh, the Viking lander and Mariner 9 that we got any great deal of information about Mars. In fact, Mariner 9 discovered Mars had some of the largest features in our solar system. It has the largest volcano that we've ever found, Olympus Mons. And it also has the largest canyon we've ever found. In fact, ballast 
Mariners, the, the Grand Canyon of Mars, is over 3,000 miles in length. It would stretch from coast to coast across the United States. Yeah, what it's uh, Valles Marineris, is that what you called it? That's correct. Right, and it's a huge feature, right? Sort of smack dab in the middle of the planet. Well, it's so huge that some of its branch and tributary canyons are larger than the Grand Canyon. My gosh. It is immense. In fact, Mars has often been referred to as the biggest little planet, because even though it's only about half the size of the Earth, it has features far in excess of its size. So right now, one of the latest discoveries is that the planet Mars has the largest, flattest plane ever discovered in the solar system. But there's a very good reason for that, and that's one of the pieces of evidence that comes to mind when we're talking about water on Mars. Mm. As, it, as it happens, water was very abundant on the planet, not in the very distant past, but in the, in the recent past. There was an ocean on Mars, at least large enough to cover half the planet, from all reckoning that we can see at this time. And when that ocean dried up, the ocean bed was full of the mud and ooze that any ocean or sea would contain. And as it dried up, it created this huge flat plain. Now, when the mud dried, it did something very interesting. It created mud polygons. I think that most anyone has gone outside and seen an area that has been full of mud that dries, mm. and it cracks up into these polygon shapes. Right. Well, the planet Mars has a huge plain covered with mud polygons. It stretches for thousands of miles. And this area shows these polygons are so large that you can see them in orbit. And when you get down to the ground, the same pattern is repeated exactly like a fractal all, all the way down to the smallest scale, the size of your hand. When you look at the images from Opportunity in particular, you see that under the dunes, this huge flat plane of mud polygon exists in all, all directions. And that is exactly why we're finding marine fossils where Opportunity over is sitting in Meridian Planum right now. Okay, and an and opportunity for, for clarification for the listeners is one of the rovers that's up there? That's correct. It's one of the two rovers. The two rovers are Spirit and Opportunity. And Spirit is located in Gusev Crater, which was suspected of being a dried-out lake bed. Opportunity is located in Meridian Planum, which was thought to also be a dried-out ocean or lake bed. And, in fact, it is. It has been confirmed that it is the bed of the dried-up ocean. Okay, now how do we get an idea for, for uh, uh, the time frame? In other words, you mentioned that, that it was probably something that happened recently, that there was w water on the surface. How, how is that something that we, that we can be certain of? Well, there are two things that we know. Number one, just recently we have found on the equator of Mars what appears to be a huge um, area of glaciers covered with dust. I, I read they it. appear to be roughly... Yes, five million years old. There were a number of very interesting articles about that in the news recently. Okay, all right, yeah. And this is the frozen sea on the equator of Mars. Huh. So there's water ice right there. The other thing that they found was that when Viking landed, it measured weather um, parameters on the planet for, the, for a couple of years, and we developed a very good model of what the atmosphere is like. Well, Viking showed some clouds in the sky. It showed frost and fog some morning. And it also showed that the relative humidity of the atmosphere on Mars was generally right around 100%. And people argue, well, there's not very much water there because the air is very thin. But what they're missing is the fact that if the atmosphere is near 100% relative humidity, it means there must be a source of water that keeps it loaded. Right, right, right. And the fact that we saw fog and ice and frost 
also confirms this. After all, if you have a fog, there has to be a very significant condensing amount in the air. Right, right. It makes perfect sense. So the things that we see every day on the Earth are directly applicable to the things we see on Mars. And what's most interesting now is that I mentioned Thomas Gold and the petroleum thing a little earlier. Right. Well, his theory was the petroleum was formed from methane gas, not from fossils. And it makes a great deal of sense because much of the petroleum they have found is far deeper than any fossil layers go. So you would have to explain in how in the world enough fossil material got far enough down under the ground to form those deposits of oil. The deepest you ever find of fossils on the Earth is about 16,000 feet down. And that's about the deepest that a layer of rock and soil could be turned over by geological action. If the oil you're digging up or, or pumping out of the ground is 20,000 or 30,000 feet down, how in the world did it get down there? Right, right. Yeah, we have to see the we, surface of the planet hasn't been turned over that deeply. Hmm. Yeah, this, there, there, we certainly know that there are many, many wells that are, that are well below 16,000 feet for sure, some 30, some 40,000 feet deep. So that fact alone gives a very substantial piece of evidence that oil itself could not possibly be a fossil. It has to come from deep within the earth. The answer is it actually comes from the dust and gas and methane that exist in the cloud from which our solar system was formed because the planets are made of that material. Interesting. And those chemicals, ammonia, methane, and water vapor, end up inside the magma, inside the planet. And chemical reactions and heat produce oil, water, carbon dioxide, nitrogen gas. So our oceans, our oil, and our atmosphere all come from the chemistry of these gases and dust. Inside the planet that are just generating all of these things. Right. Huh. Now, I'll think about where that leads us. Huh. The process occurred when Mars formed. Hmm. So Mars itself should have oil and petroleum inside itself. And water. That's right. So what we're seeing today is the water that is deep underground is still emerging. Imagine if we were to remove the lakes and rivers and oceans from the Earth. We would still have springs. Yes. And we'd still have sources of water deep underground. Right, right, right. On Mars, even with the loss of its, most of its atmosphere and a great deal of its water, we still see that water is emerging from underground. And I have a number of pictures documenting in full color and in stereo active geysers on the surface today. And the reason we know that they're active is some of the pictures actually show water has been dribbled on the surface of the soil and you can see the dark traces from it. In others you can see what clearly is runoff and mud that has dried just as it would in any ditch or culvert here on the earth after the rain. And the fact is the erosion of those features on Mars occurs from dust storms and from dust devils and from other uh, actions of the wind and those features would be destroyed in a matter of days or weeks if they were not continually being reformed. Hmm. Well, I tell you, that's so a good point. that we see very clear evidence shows that it's still being done today. Right. Okay. Look, that's a good uh, chance to give out the website again, and uh, and maybe we can give the listeners uh, uh, an opportunity to look at some of the things that you're mentioning there. Uh, so, let's see, xenotechresearch.com, and then how can we direct them to some of these uh, some of these images, Sir Charles? Once you go to the site, there is a directory that shows you fossil images, water images, and other categories of material, and you can select it very easily from there. It, 
In fact, uh, people who go to the site will notice there's also a forum, and you can look at the individual articles, and you can post comments on them as well. Right. There's a blog right on the front page there. That's correct. And we've got a number of people who do quite a bit of analysis of what we found and post comments on it, and it leads to some very interesting questions and discussions. The most interesting thing about it is it helps you refine your arguments because well, people will ask questions and you've got to come up with an answer. Well, I tell you what, I I I, to I f totally applaud you for doing that, and, and I think that I hope that it's something that uh, that other researchers should be doing. Uh, I think it's a wonderful idea as long as you can keep control of it. I know sometimes these forums get out of control, but uh, but I think that's really commendable that you're willing to to listen to the critiques and ideas of other people and then and then and then modify your own theories. I think that's brilliant. Well, and think about this. Today, a great deal of, of weight and substance is placed on the peer review process. Mm -hmm. But realize most of our scientific discoveries were never in an atmosphere where peer review existed. Mm. What did Newton do that was peer reviewed? He mm. made his presentation, and people either figured out whether it worked or not, or they ignored it. Yeah. How about Galilei? Yeah. You know, there yeah. was no peer process in place for Galileo's work yeah, 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 yeah. and in fact the church censured him and locked him up for the rest of his life yeah. he would retract his statements no kidding I was just at a yeah. I, was, I was at a conference this weekend and and uh, I mentioned it earlier on the program one of the one of the presentations actually the one that finished the conference was uh, a performance piece and it was entitled letters from Copernicus and uh, this is another historical figure that uh, was under a deep censure and uh, fr from the church for, for introducing the idea that the sun was actually the center of the solar system uh, as opposed to the earth. Uh, so there's a long history That's of... That's right. Every of, time. Every time there's an uncomfortable idea, whoever happens to be in control seems to want to censure it yeah, rather than confront it and see if it's actually a fact. Yeah, I agree. And we see that uh, today as much as we've seen it in the past. So I think it's great that you're sort of leapfrogging that and letting, uh, 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 you know, and the other thing, the other point I'll make is that many of the most uh, important discoveries uh, have been made by quote-unquote amateurs, you know? Absolutely. In fact, the field of astronomy would not be what it is today without an extremely powerful amateur base. I couldn't agree more. All right. All right. Well, look, I'm on the water features page, and uh, for anybody that's interested, yeah, go take a look at some of this stuff. It's pretty, uh, uh, pretty amazing. This one on uh, uh, in Gusev Crater in particular I came up across. It's a pretty interesting one. Yes, I found something very interesting, and I've made quite a bit of it, and nobody has commented on it whatsoever in terms of officials. <laughs> and I call it the discovery moat rocks. What I found is a number of rocks in the Goose of Crater area that appear to have a ring in the sand around them. Now, many of hmm. the nearby rocks don't have that feature at all. Hmm. Some of these rocks stand out very clearly because it looks like the sand has been brushed or blown away from them. As it turns out, I found a very simple model to explain it. If there's a bed underground where water exists and it produces steam, it can blow away the sand from under the rock, and the rock is capping the vent so it deflects the sand all around it and that's why you see the pattern you do. The interesting thing is, the same pattern was seen in the images from Titan. The lander that went, Huygens lander that landed on Titan, the moon of Saturn, mm -hmm. will show in its foreground a moat rock, identical to ones on Mars. And we know that the only active fluid on Titan is most likely methane. So well, the same process is happening there as it is happening on Mars. I thought that was extremely interesting. Amazing, the actually. Most 
fascinating part of it is this. Nobody anywhere has ever once made a single comment about the moat rocks. It's a very odd and obvious feature, something that catches your eye. And with all the findings I've done, uh, work on, and published, not a single word has been said by any other university or research organization about it. Very interesting. The sort of uh, uh, the silence is deafening sort of thing. <laughs> well, absolutely. It proves that there's some sort of a fluid medium producing the effect, and they can't explain what it is. Amazing. All right. Well, I tell you what. Um, let me ask you one more question before we go. We'll take a break at the bottom of the hour here. But uh, I guess, um, well, and I think maybe may, let's take a break now because I want to talk about more about what the existence of, of water really means, uh, what, what the implications of that are. Uh, and I think that'll, that'll, that'll take us more than five minutes to talk about. So, uh, okay. so let's do that. We'll, uh, we'll take a break here, and we will be back with Sir Charles Schultz. And uh, we're talking about Mars tonight, among other things. But uh, right now, uh, we will uh, play a little music first and come back and talk a little bit more about the implications of water on Mars. And I've got a lot, of, lot more questions uh, uh, for Sir Charles, including uh, his title. So we'll talk about all this stuff in just a few minutes. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia. And uh, this is the Foo Fighters.
Listeners' support and donations from Mojo's. Information about Mojo's is available at www.mojo'sclumia.org, or you call, or you can call five seven three eight seven five one five eight eight. All right, uh, thank you, Matt. And that's Mojo's at www.mojoscolumbia.com or uh, check them out on the web and you can get the phone number there as well. All right, this is Mike, and you're listening to KOPN Radio Orbit 89.5 FM. It's about 12.30 on uh, Tuesday now, the 18th of October, a full moon night, Mars rising beautifully in the sky right next to the moon tonight, and fittingly, we have uh, a wonderful guest, uh, Sir Charles Schultz, who happens to be an expert on the planet Mars and has discovered some very interesting things over the last year and a half. And uh, we're going to continue our conversation now. So, oh, okay, so, Sir Charles, I got an email here from one of my listeners that says, uh, Why Sir Charles? I have to ask you about your name. Okay, that's a simple one. <laughs> I did some research, and I was knighted and given a research grant to cover five years of research by a Scottish baron. Huh. Baron of Balkwain. And so because he's a landed baron, he is allowed to knight people. And so he knighted me, and in uh, reward for the research I'd done previously, he gave me a five-year research grant, and that's how I became Sir Charles. <laughs> Fantastic. All right, cool. Okay, so look, we're talking about water. And uh, before we talk about why it's important, let's talk more about it. I, I, I want to really uh, bring it home the fact that there really is water on Mars today, and uh, and I want to ask you some more, a little bit more specific questions about liquid water. Uh, Absolutely. And uh, so let, let's talk about that a little bit more, and then maybe we can move on to uh, implications and what uh, what you think what what you think it all means. Okay. Well, you know, one of the most interesting things about people uh, believing whether there's water on Mars or not. People have often been told that liquid water on the surface of Mars would simply explode away or evaporate. Well, this is a misconception. The reason they believe this is because we're often shown the historical footage of a fellow in a spacesuit in a vacuum chamber with a cup full of water. Right. And when they take the air out of the chamber, the water begins to explosively boil away. Well, realize that that water was already at room temperature. If the water had been ice water... That would not have happened, or it would have happened far less dramatically. Correct. You see, the temperature of the water itself is, is the deciding factor. Consider this. If you have a pot of water on the stove and you raise it to boiling, does it instantly vanish? No, no. No, it does not. In the same manner, water on the surface of Mars will not instantly explode away into vapor. 
Okay. It takes time to evaporate, just as it does on the Earth. And the only way it's going to be able to be liquid at all is if it is at a low enough temperature to be in the environment in the first place. Uh, now, this has been verified by experiments. Dr. Gilbert Levin, once again the fellow who worked on the Viking Lander's biological package, and his son Ron Levin, do, do research projects, and they also do contracting for space companies. And one of the things they did was some work on spacesuits for use on the surface of Mars. So they had a vacuum chamber set up to emulate the temperatures and pressures of the surface of Mars. And one of the things they discovered is when they sprayed liquid water on the suits and they brought the temperatures and pressures down to match Mars, a lot of liquid water remained in the chamber under those conditions. So this is very, very interesting. If you look something up on a table and somebody's calculated the boiling points and the temperatures, that's a mathematical model and it doesn't necessarily match reality. When you do the actual experiment and you get real empirical results, it'll win over theory every time. Right. And more succinctly, research done by a number of researchers, a Dr. Sears in particular, shows that on Mars today, given the temperatures and pressures that exist on the planet, water will evaporate at a rate of roughly 1.1 millimeters per hour, and in sometimes, uh, some cases, 0.8 millimeters per hour. In other words, a puddle an inch deep could easily last a couple of days if it were in something where it wouldn't soak in. Hmm. So actual physical, physical experiments put the lie to the statement that water cannot exist on the surface of Mars. We know that it can, and it's been proven. Okay. But not much is made of that fact. Well, why? Well, I'm not really certain, but I think that either nobody thinks anybody would be that interested in it, or it's just not considered very important. If you look at the uh, information that's coming out now about the fact that Mars did have oceans, how many people know that? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's been said but not very loudly. And one of the key pieces of evidence is not just the mud polygons, but if you were to dry up an ocean, what would be left behind? Salt. Right. Yeah, you know, if the water evaporates, the salt is left behind. That's the, the, the principle behind distilling water. And the soil on Mars in Gusev Crater is up to half salts. Now that's an incredible proportion of salt. And again, the re uh, let, let me let me ask you another clarification question. The, Certainly, the reason that we would assume that the water on Mars is similar in composition to the water on Earth is because of uh, the way the planets form. Maybe go through that again, just really quickly. Okay. Well, first of all, water has a specific chemical formula: hydrogen and oxygen. Right. So water will be water no matter where you are. Correct. When a, when a planet forms, it's made from dust and gas, a nebula to be precise. And a whole solar system forms at the same time, a star in the middle and the planets around it. Right. And the dust and gas has uh, material sticking together basically because of ice, water molecules. When these particles stick together, the ice can absorb methane and ammonia and hold on to it, just like sticky tape will hold on to lint. Okay. And as these particles grow in size and they become larger, you end up with asteroid belts and eventually smaller planets and eventually larger planets. When you reach that stage from an asteroid and up, the collisions of the material begin to heat it significantly, and it becomes molten. You have balls of lava floating in space. Now, trapped inside that lava, in, in, it's inside uh, a body, it's typically called magma, trapped inside the magma is all this ammonia and methane and water vapor. And the ammonia and the methane react chemically with this molten rock to produce petroleum, water vapor, carbon dioxide, and nitrogen gas, 
and that's where our atmosphere, our water from our oceans, and our petroleum all come from. Huh, okay. All right, good. Thank you for clarifying that. Certainly. Okay, so, uh, so liquid water on Mars, ice on Mars, uh, it looks like geysers on Mars, which, which means vapor. So we have basically all the three states of water uh, apparently present currently in real time on the, present, uh, on the surface of the planet Mars. Well, that's true, and they've also confirmed another interesting fact. You know, we often see images that show clouds in the atmosphere of Mars, and we're told, well, those are ice crystal clouds. Mm. Well, there's a very interesting method of distinguishing ice crystals from water droplets, and it has to do with polarized light. Anyone who uses those Polaroid sunglasses that reduce the glare know how polarized light works. The light is blocked off if it doesn't rotate in the proper direction, for instance, if it's not oriented properly. When water vapor forms clouds, it polarizes the light. When ice crystals form clouds, it does not. This means that something like the Hubble Space Telescope can look at the clouds on Mars and using nothing but a polarizer filter can determine whether they're droplets of water or crystals of ice. Okay, all right. And so what they have found is that there are actual water droplet clouds in the Martian atmosphere, which leads to the next question. Can it rain on Mars? Apparently it could. Oh, man. Now, is, do, do we have any evidence of that? There is some evidence of it, although it's a little thin. Um, you know when Opportunity was stuck in the sand dunes for a couple of weeks? It, it rolled into some sand dunes, and it got stuck there. And the reason was it's actually muddy, sticky soil, not just sand. Well, it took a couple of weeks for them to get the rover out of the dunes. Now, there were tracks left where its wheels went over the soil when it got stuck. And when it backed out, it followed the same path, and it went over its own tracks. Right, okay, I remember that. Okay, some of the older tracks were a couple of weeks old now. And so they did a microscopic examination of those tracks, and one of the interesting things they found was they appeared to be battered by water droplets. They weren't sharp and clean like you would expect them to be if there was mm. no erosion. Right, right, right. And Amazing. on my site, I have images of this that shows where the rain uh, appears to be either geyser spray or a very fine rain that has fallen on the ground and created those droplet patterns. I'll be damned. So, yes, indeed, there is liquid water, and it is eroding things on the surface, and it's only taking between 2 and 12 days for it to happen. My and gosh. we've got the records of the NASA images showing the before and after, so we have proof that it happens. All right, and so uh, now, I mean, for me, as a layman, I mean, this seems highly significant. I, I don't see how anybody, especially the scientific community uh, and, and the biological community, the biology people, uh, not to mention the geosciences, everybody should be all, this should be, this is big news. Well, it is, and it's interesting how strongly they resist these findings. It, it makes no sense to me, because you would feel that the discovery of this magnitude, that there is liquid water on our next door planet, and the significance of finding what appears to be fossils and possibly even existing life, this has a lot of implications. It certainly it does. It may very well be that water and life are common all throughout the universe. Apparently right now, from what we can see, it appears that anywhere that the proper chemicals exist and there's water and energy, you're going to have life. Yeah, and, uh, you know, regardless of what uh, uh, the sort of consensus quo is, there is an underlying... Uh, Resistance, strong resistance for that sort of news. 
And I don't know where it really emanates from, and I'm not going to really question, uh, you know, why. But it seems uh, that that is that it's true, uh, and and it doesn't it, to me it doesn't surprise because as we talked about a little bit earlier, uh, this is sort of uh, uh, the past is peppered with this stuff. It's it has plenty of historical precedent. Well, yes, and I don't understand really why. It appears to be a control issue, and hmm. that doesn't make any sense. There's no room in science for politics. Hmm. Um, there, there's, I, maybe I can retract that a little. There's one case that I'm aware of where scientists got together to do something about a political situation, and that was the development of the atomic bomb. <laughs> and there, in this particular case, uh, one of the fellows, Zillard, decided that this was so incredibly important that we not start sharing information with people because they might develop it before us. We need to go ahead with research on it. And he, he was born out, you know, his, his right. idea was correct. And, of course, we developed the atomic bomb. Right. But in most branches of science, you don't expect that anything so earth-shattering is going to be found, certainly not finding microorganisms or sea life fossils on Mars. I mean, how in the world could that prove to be a horrible thing? How could it be dangerous? Yeah, yeah, and not only that, it 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 actually to me sounds hopeful. Well, yes, it does. It means that we're not alone in the universe, and and many people will say, well, you know, that's you know just some microbes and some sea urchins. Well, that's true, but the fact that there's life at all on Mars means that there are probably many other worlds with life. And in our galaxy alone, there could be billions of worlds with life, right. even I, if it's very simple. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I mean, the uh, quite frankly, people that make comments like, like you just mentioned, are it's an anthropocentric, uh, hubristic attitude that, 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 quite frankly, I don't think has any, has any room anymore, in, certainly not in science. Well, absolutely not. You know, we have to remain open to the facts. And we have to learn to deal with them. No question about it. All right. Well, then let's talk a little bit more about what it means uh, if if there is water. Uh, we, we have we have certainly the biological uh, uh, question that becomes now very pertinent because everything we know about life on Earth uh, is directly related to water. Well, that's correct. Um, but then there are other implications as well. Uh, well, just for a starter. Suppose we decide we're going to move out off the planet Earth into the solar system, and we're going to do some colonizing and some exploring. The most vital element for our survival is water. I mean, think about it. If you don't have water for three days, you'll die. That's if you right. don't have food, you may last a month or more. Hmm. So water, you know, next to air, water is your most important uh, thing. Right. Now, if you go to Mars right now, there are many places you can land, and with nothing more than a shovel and a still, you'd have enough water to stay alive indefinitely. Amazing. And... Right now, it's estimated there's enough permafrost on the planet that if it were all melted, it would create a planet-covering ocean on Mars. There is a crater that they discovered near the North Pole of Mars at 70 degrees north latitude that contains over two cubic miles of water ice, My and that's God. been confirmed. Really? There is an entire frozen sea on the equator, which we spoke of just a little while ago, mm. uncounted cubic mm. miles of water there. Mm. We can only begin to estimate so the planet has plenty of water, but even if none of that was present, there's still water on Mars in other forms, and they still refuse to acknowledge this. Everybody who's made anything out of plaster of Paris knows that you add water to the mixture, or the same for concrete, true? Right. And as it sets, where does the water go? Does it evaporate? 
No. Mm. It becomes a part of the, of the crystal structure of the rock or the mineral. Right. It's called water of hydration. The same is true with salts. Many salts have water molecules bound up in their structure, even though they're a dry, hard solid. Right, um, right, magnesium right. sulfate, or Epsom salts, mm. is a large component of the salts in the soil of Mars. And magnesium sulfate is between 60 and 70% water, water molecules. Right. Gypsum itself, the mineral from which the sedimentary rocks in Meridiani Planum are made, you know, the, the rocks that are in layers and have the spherules coming out of them, mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. gypsum. And a good 30% of that is water. Holy cow. So if you had nothing but the rocks and the salt to work with, you could place it in an oven, heat it up, and you could drive the water out, and you'd have more than enough right there. Amazing. Many gallons in every cubic meter of rock and dirt. Amazing. You know, and I remember uh, uh, there was... This was supposedly one of the big uh, challenges that they would have to uh, have to uh, overcome was the fact that they were going to have to bring water, so much water with them on these space missions. Uh, well, do you know what these findings mean? No, we don't have to do it. That's right. We don't have to do it. We can go to Mars now and live like kings because there's so much water you'll never run out. But this is even more interesting. Recent studies of the largest asteroid in our solar system, the asteroid Ceres, shows that the rock inside that asteroid may be up to one-fourth water ice. In other words, there's more fresh water ice inside the asteroid series than there is fresh water on the planet, on the Earth. planet Earth. So, so water now, it turns out, may, may be much more common than we ever imagined. It's far more common than we imagined. It's everywhere. Hmm. All right, what about... Uh, is uh, how how alone are you on these ideas? Uh, well, actually, there's a great deal of support, but it comes in you know dribs and drabs here and there. You'll see a, a publication from a university here or a publication from a research group there, but nobody seems to be putting all of the pieces together. So one of the things that I've done on some of the pages on my site is extensively linked to all of these pages, showing the, re the research and the support for my findings, because it's necessary to get all of this information in one place so people can look it over and say, well, yes, this is an ironclad case. And understand another thing. The people who do this work often don't get any credit. Nobody ever really hears about them. Mm. I want to make certain that every one of these researchers who's contributed a piece gets their share of the credit. Right, and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, repeat the website one more time uh, because it is cool what you're doing there, uh, xenotechresearch.com. And as you'll notice, uh, there's a blog right on the front page with... Lots of interesting articles there, and what you can do is read them. And if you're interested in researching or commenting yourself, you can do that. And uh, Sir Charles will uh, will take uh, take note of your comments. And and again, some of this stuff is amazing because well, much of it is based on uh, on uh, imagery, physical evidence, pictures uh, of this stuff. And it's pretty astonishing when you look at some of these images. So I suggest people go to the site, uh, take a look around. And uh, certainly look, uh, read a few of these articles and look at some of those images, uh, the water features. And then I think we'll have to talk about fossils in a little while, but uh, uh, let's uh, continue on the same line here for a second. So, Okay, great. Okay, one of the things that I've found that's very, very interesting is early on they had what appeared to be what they thought was a piece of volcanic rock. And this was in Gusev Crater, where the Spirit Rover is located. Mm -hmm. When they used the rock abrasion tool to cut into the rock, 
it turns out it's clay. <laughs> so the uh, the particular uh, images that I took are actually on my site on a page called Wet Clay One. And so if you go to that particular link or if you go down the water links, you'll find it. It actually shows a close-up microscopic image where the material has smeared and rolled up. And obviously, you know, granite or, you know, any other sort of hard, dry rock isn't going to do that. Right, right, right. So the existence of this clay is very, very clear. Any child would recognize it from the images. Another fascinating piece of proof is found in Saul 122. There's an area of the ground where it looks like a pipe has broken and, and the water's been running. And it's very clearly a geyser. Um, on Saul 314, we've got some really nice water erosion images. Now, my favorites were right around Saul 100, when Opportunity was at the top of Endurance Crater. You can see very clearly a flow of what appears to be mud running down into the crater. So if you'll take some time and go down the water features, you will see dozens of pages with, in many cases, full-color and stereo images. Um, some of the cases I put together anaglyphs, and some of the people know what those are. If you have the red and blue glasses, you can see them in 3D. In other cases, they're called cross-eye stereo pairs, and if you look at them and you cross your eyes slightly, you can see it in stereo. <laughs> so there's a great deal of information right there. One of my favorites shows a big wet spot surrounding Bounce Rock and a gully cut down around the side of it, and then three saws later, it's dry. And you can tell the difference between the dry and the wet soil because it's dark on one saw and it's light on the next. Yeah, these are they, they really are something else. I just opened the one with the, uh, the wet clay, uh, it says, Spirit Finds Wet Clay. This exactly. Is, this is amazing. So, okay, all this stuff at xenotechresearch.com, and then just click through over to the uh, water images uh, page, and you can cruise through these yourself and look at them as we're, as, we're, as we're chatting with you here. So, wow, amazing stuff, Sir Charles. Now, another interesting thing that I found, and this was sort of indirect, but it has an interesting bearing on Earth's fossil records, so you might like this. Um, one of the things I wanted to do was to discover how thick Mars' atmosphere had been in the past, okay. if there had been any significant differences. Hmm. Well, of course, our best example to work with is the Earth. And research done here indicates that the atmosphere of the Earth, when it was first formed, was about 250 times as dense as it is today. Okay. Now, Venus still retains a lot of its atmosphere. It's got about 70 atmospheres of pressure. Mm -hmm. And so there in itself is a piece of information that's very useful in discovering what our past world was like. Now, if Mars started with the same sort of chemical composition and density that the Earth did, and that's a pretty fair assumption because it was made from the same material at the same time. Yeah, you know, this, that, that's a profound point uh, that, that, that you've made a couple of times, and I want to reiterate that. I mean, this idea that... Uh, it seems to be sort of a misconception then that just because of all the uh, just because all the planets in, in the solar sy system sort of look different and have different qualities right now, uh, apparently, and it, and, it, and it seems self-evident. It makes perfect sense that they're all sort of composed of the same material because they developed at the same time in the same conditions, etc. That's correct. Now the big difference, of course, is the gas giant planets, Jupiter, Saturn, and the rest of the solar system reaching mm -hmm. out from there because their immense bulk managed to trap a huge fraction of the hydrogen gas that was in the original nebula. Okay. So they're sort of a snapshot in cold storage of what the, the stellar nebula was like that our planets were formed from. Right. But the terrestrial planets have a great deal more mineral material 
magma interacting with these chemicals produced the chemistry that we have today for our atmosphere and our oceans. And one of the things that I did in this model was create uh, an early Mars atmosphere model and see how it eroded. And I used data from the Aspera 3 package that's orbiting Mars now, and it looks at the amount of atmosphere Mars is losing at the present time. And it came within a pretty close agreement of what the Aspera package says for Mars atmospheric loss. And what I discovered is about 2 billion years ago, Mars would have had an atmosphere in the same thickness, uh, about the same density as we have today. Wow. And at that time, of course, the planet would have been covered with oceans. Mm. And, and there's another interesting point. The fact that Mars is red proves mm. that there had to be free oxygen. Why is that? Because it's rusted iron. Yeah, it's, uh, everything's oxidized. That's right. Asteroids are made of iron, and they're not rusted. <laughs> Mars had iron on its surface, and it's all rusted. Water and oxygen. Amazing. But that's just a little side note. The red planet had to have life and it had to have oxygen. Um, Looking at Mars' atmosphere, now we go back to Earth's atmosphere. What was Earth's atmosphere like in the past? Well, you know, this raises an interesting point. We look in the fossil record and we see gigantic insects, such as cockroaches and dragonflies two feet across. Right. And we see centipedes ten feet long. How in the world could these things have lived? Well, they couldn't have survived in today's atmosphere, and they don't. But at the time that they lived on the Earth, during the Permian era, our atmosphere was about twice as dense as it is today. Okay. And suddenly we understand how the development of flight could occur in animals. It was much easier to fly in a much thicker atmosphere. Mm. Very small projections of the body could act effectively as ailerons or flaps, and very easily we can see how animals could develop that could fly. Amazing. It wouldn't happen in a thin atmosphere like we have today, but in a much thicker atmosphere it's much more likely. Makes perfect sense. And the fact is, with a thicker atmosphere and more oxygen available, you now have the chemistry needed to support extremely large insects and extremely large animals. Mm. Yeah, higher oxygen content. That's right, and a higher atmospheric pressure. Mm. Amazing. So... Because I was looking at Mars, I discovered an explanation for many of the things we see in Earth's fossil record. Really which to me seems to be another confirmation that I'm on the right track. Yeah, your, your background in, in the geosciences here uh, has, is of a great help, apparently. Yeah, absolutely, because there's a great deal of things that happen with minerals and chemistry that are fairly well understood, and we can see those processes are duplicated on other planets now. Wow. All right, hey, uh, let's take a break in a minute here, but let me ask you a quick question, uh, sort of off uh, off topic a little bit. How many craft and instruments do we have around that planet right now? It seems like there's a, a whole myriad of different devices up there, and yet uh, with all this astonishing information, obviously lots of money is being spent, yet uh, the, these amazing discoveries are being, uh, if nothing else, uh, marginalized. Well, there are at least six craft right now orbiting the planet that I'm aware of, and there are more on the way. Uh, not all of them are launched by the United States, some by the European Space Agency and some by Japan and other agencies as well. Um, but there are quite a few um, landers on the planet and orbital craft around the planet right now. And I have um, a good friend who helped build the hyperspectral filter that goes into the, um, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter that's going up there right now. And um, so, you know, there's a lot of information coming from Mars from various orbital cameras and instruments the Themis, the MOLA, uh, many other things. But a good place to find a lot of the information is MSSS.com, Malin Space Science Systems. They have a great 
bank of data and images present there that you can get right off the web. So, does, is Malin still running all the imagery stuff? Just about all of it. He's pretty much got the market cornered. That's amazing. That's an amazing story in and of itself. But the, well, well, we'll talk about this stuff later. We're getting toward the top of the hour here. I need to take a break. So uh, we'll be back in just a few minutes with Sir Charles Schultz and uh, amazing information that he's sharing with us tonight. And I look forward to talking to him. We've got another hour with him on the line here, and uh, we will uh, continue along uh, with our Mars discussion, and we'll see where else uh, uh, we can go after that. All right, this is Mike. You're listening to KOPN Radio Orbit, and this is Landlocked Blues from Bright Eyes. I'm wide awake it's morning. Back in a few minutes, Mike, Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia. If you walk away, I'll walk away. First tell me which road you will take. Don't want to risk our paths crossing someday So you walk that way, I'll walk this way And the future hangs over our heads And it moves with each current event Until it falls all around like a cold steady rain Just stay in when it's looking this way and the moon's laying low in the sky Forcing everything metal to shine And the sidewalk holds diamonds like a jewelry store case They argue, walk this way, no, walk this way And Laura's asleep in my bed As I'm leaving, she wakes up and says I dreamed you were carried away on the crest of a wave. Baby, don't go away. Come here. And there's kids playing guns in the street. And one's pointing his tree branch at me. And so I put my hand up. I say enough is enough. If you walk away, I'll walk away. He shot me dead I found a liquid cure From my landlocked blues It will pass away Like a slow parade It's leaving But I don't know how soon A 
box full of suggestions for your possible heart. But you may be offended and you may be afraid. But don't walk away, don't walk away. We made love on the living room floor. With the noise in the background from a televised war. And in that deafening pleasure, I thought I heard someone say, If we walk away, they'll walk away. But greed is a bottomless pit. And our freedom's a joke, we're just taking a piss. And the whole world must watch the sad comic display. If you're still free, start running away. Cause we're coming for you. Bright Eyes from Wide Awake. It's morning, and it is. And this is Mike. You're listening to KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM, Mid-Missouri source for in-depth news, diverse talk, music of the world. It's more than radio. It's listener-sponsored community radio. Off the radar, but on the dial. Radio Orbit, KOPN, and having a great conversation tonight with my guest, Sir Charles Schultz. Uh, runs a fabulous website called xenotechresearch.com. That's xenotech with a with an X, not a Z. X E N O T E C H research.com. And uh, there's lots of interesting stuff there at the site, and he has lots of interesting things to say. So, uh, Sir Charles, we're back at it. Where were we? We're we're, we're talking a lot about. Uh, uh, all of the activity on uh, on Mars right now. There's a lot of interest uh, from planet Earth and spacecraft and uh, critters crawling around on the surface. And we've got evidence of water, obvious evidence of water in 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 all three different states: liquid, uh, frozen, and uh, in a gaseous state as as steam coming from geysers and things like this. I mean, my gosh, what else? Uh, uh, <laughs> Well, the planet is very active geologically. There's quite a deal of weathering, and I know people have taken um, a great deal of interest in the dust devil images that were sent back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
And they say, well, you know, if the surface is this dry and dusty, how can there be so much water present? And the answer to that is actually very simple. Anyone who's been to the beach knows that there are sand dunes hmm. quite often. But if you dig a hole with your hand down an inch or two, there will be a puddle of water beneath. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. And so the same process is happening on Mars. And the very thin atmosphere and the sunlight help to dry out the outermost layer of the soil so it remains quite dry and dusty right on the surface. But as the rover wheels travel over the surface, water, which basically is brine because of all the salt that is present, oozes up under the wheels. I know we've all had the unpleasant experience of stepping on a wet carpet, which didn't look like it was wet, and the water wells up between your toes. Mm. Well, the same thing happens in the soil on Mars, and it's very clear because we can see in the rover tracks what appears to be a white crystal or dusty material. Now, if you think about it, if you drive over a dusty surface, it doesn't turn white. Well, obviously something's happening, hmm. and it has to be a physical change to the material. That physical change is there is water being raised up from below. It's drying out from the rover wheels, the thin air, and the hot sun. And Mars is essentially a desert at the surface. Right. So even though most of the temperatures range around the Antarctic in terms of the comfort zone, there are very warm places on the planet, and the surface can get quite warm during the day, up to 86 degrees Fahrenheit is in direct that, sunlight. Is that right? That is correct. So it's obvious that liquid water can, can exist in, in, in an atmosphere. That's right. Like that. However, at those temperatures, it would definitely become a vapor, and that's why the outermost layer of the soil stays very dry. Ah, because the atmospheric pressure is so much lower. That's right. Okay. So the soil protects the water from evaporating. Mm -hmm. And another mm -hmm. process, too. If the atmosphere is loaded with humidity, no more can evaporate. Hmm. It's, it's saturated, 100% hmm. humidity at that point. Outrageous. All right, we were talking about fossils. You mentioned fossils early on. Yes, uh, indeed. What the hell is that about? What, what, and, and, and I'll have to ask you this question later, but maybe it's related, so I'll just throw it out there now. What about these blue balls, things that were found on the, on, on the surface? These little Actually, those are the fossils. Holy it God. turns out that there are trillions of these little spherules all over Meridian Planum, and some have been found in Gusev as well, but not as many. What these are is they are the remains of dead organisms. Some people thought that they might be bacteria. Some people thought they might be some sort of sponge organisms. That's not what they are. We have a few of them that are not eroded and worn down, and you can see that they are sea urchins and trilobites. Now, do we have imagery of this on the site? Yes, we do. If you will look at the fossils, well, as a matter of fact, if you go to the home page itself right. where all the articles are listed, it will list a number of different categories. One of them is the fossil images. Right. And the second two, uh, first and second article at the top of the page when you first enter the site, I see. one says proof of fossils, the null criterion. Let me explain what that is real quickly. Okay. There is a researcher who said, if we find something that looks like a fossil, we have to be certain that this isn't something that random erosion or crystal processes could produce. It has to be something very clearly that only biology could produce. That's the null criterion, and it's being applied to the material that they're seeing in the images from the rovers. Okay, I have found many things that meet and exceed the null criterion and are, in fact, fossils. If you click on that particular link, you will see the patterns that show up on many of these things again and again. Now, this is one of the most powerful proofs. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Pentagons. 
you don't find regular pentagons in crystals. And the reason is the same as if you tile a floor. If you go to tile a floor, you can use triangles, and they'll fit evenly. They'll do it completely. You can use squares or rectangles, and you can completely tile the floor with no gaps. You can use uh, pentagon, uh, not um, pentagons. You can use hexagons. So triangles, squares, and hexagons, which have two and three fold symmetry involved in them, can tile a floor completely without any gaps in it. When you get the pentagons, it won't work because pentagons, regular pentagons, will always have a gap left. Okay, now, okay. crystals, non-biological crystals, will not grow perfect pentagons because of this, because the molecules will not fit together without leaving gaps behind. <laughs> so if you find something that has pentagons on it, that's a very strong indicator that biology is involved. Yeah, I'm looking at this image here, and I'm going to read, uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to read a caption at the top here, okay? Please do. All right, again, this is from xenotechresearch.com. Click on the uh, article right at the top of the front page that, that talks about uh, this particular criteria uh, uh, to determine if something is a fossil or not. So uh, it says, earlier in the mission, Opportunity, and again, Opportunity is one of the uh, rovers that's up there, uh, Opportunity was an eagle crater and performed some detailed studies of the spherules that were emerging from the various rock outcroppings. In some cases, the spherules uh, and soil were pushed with the instrumentation arm, allowing NASA scientists to examine the soil properties and determine some of the mechanical properties of the spherules. In one instance, at least, this has provided proof that this particular spherule is a sea urchin. Here are the details. And he goes on to describe this. It's amazing. It's, and and the, the pictures are worth a thousand, uh, thousand words, as usual. Yes, you can actually see that one of the segments, the sea urchin's teeth, has broken in where the rover arm has pressed on it. The upper image was taken on Sol 46 by opportunity. When they pressed on the spherules in the soil, you can see in the next image that the soil has deflected and it's sticking together. It's not just dry sand. But most significant, a small triangular section has broken out of the top of the spherule where the sea urchin's mouth is. One of the five teeth has broken away. And if you look closely at the image on the left, you can just make out the outlines of those segments, like pie segments. Huh. And on the right, I've outlined it in red so you can see it more clearly. Right, right, right. So the before and after pictures show that this is indeed some sort of an object that when you press on it, a little segment of it breaks away and falls into a somewhat hollow interior. This is indeed a sea urchin. One of the teeth has broken off from mechanical movement from the rover arm. Amazing. That's one of the very, very simplest ways of showing this, but there's much more in the next links. So on, on the line below the null criterion proof, uh, proof of fossils, if you click the, uh, the one that says obvious features soon to expand, listen here. And if you click on the here, you will see the patterns that show up again and again on many of the spherules. Mm. Now, this is an interesting thing. If you have a rock and you find an interesting marking on it, you may say, well, that was interesting. You know, erosion randomly produced this little marking. But if you found five or ten of those with an identical marking on it, then you'd begin to question whether erosion was capable of doing that. Right. Because erosion is a random process. It's not going to be directed to produce patterns. Okay, I agree. 
So here we found patterns that repeat again and again, and many of them have pentagon or five-fold symmetry, which once again is a strong indicator of biological action. Hmm. So one of the features we found was a pentagon supported uh, that's surrounded by ten uniform little forms, like a sunburst. It looks like a little picture of uh, a pentagon sun. This shows up on one of the urchins in uh, Sol 14 pictures. <laughs> And you can see it again and again. Then we have a triangle that has a pattern that looks somewhat like a Christmas tree with a circle. And this is, this is a pattern that is not worn off of the rock. It's etched into the surface of the rock. And the, the interesting part is it's symmetrical from right to left. It has mirror symmetry or bilateral symmetry. And this shows that whatever eroded one side, if this is erosion, had to be smart enough to do the other side the exact same way. Huh. Well, you wouldn't expect that to happen at random. Right. Um, the other one below there, you see a thing that looks like a five-pointed uh, flower. What this is, is once again a pentagon symmetry or a five-fold symmetry. Below those images, you will see the original organisms that these appear on from the original NASA images, and you can pick them out very clearly. These are not random or accidental patterns. They're the product of biology. Okay, so uh, uh, so that that's the fossil uh, that's the fossil. That's right. That is a fossil you're looking at right there. And we've got even better ones. And Some then, of them are so clear, you see them immediately. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm sort of stuttering because I'm looking at the images. It's the first time I've seen these, and uh, it's, it's amazing. Now, the next question becomes if there's fossils and there's water, is there current life? Well, I'll tell you something. I don't think that anything sterilized or autoclaved the planet. And that means that there's a very strong possibility that there could still be the equivalent of fungus or bacterial life in the soil. And this would play right into what Dr. Gilbert Levitt found on Viking. Right, he right, found right. what appeared to be biological activity in the soil. This is amazing. And, and uh, you know, it... Again, it begs the question, why is this not big news? I mean... And I have no idea. You know, you would think that they would be just fantastically happy to have made this find. I cannot believe that they're not aware of this. And I have been contacted by a number of people who work with NASA and JPL, and privately they've confirmed what I have found is correct. But they are not allowed to speak because of the non-disclosure agreements that they have signed with NASA and the Jet Propulsion Laboratories. So, so NASA, in other words, and I, and I want to add this because this is important, or, or just to, to re, uh, reiterate it, these images are all NASA or JPL images. Exactly. And, 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 they can and you be, can trace them all back yes. to their website. Right. They can easily be, be uh, verified that they are uh, uh, legitimate and original photographs that were released by JPL, NASA, and uh, the Malin, uh, Michael Malin Space Center. So, uh, so... Um, God, it's stunning, I, isn't it? It is. It is absolutely stunning, and and uh, uh, they have all of these images coming out. They have all of this evidence coming out, but they but they don't seem to be saying much. So what? Well, is, no, they don't. <laughs> so NASA's official uh, again is this, is this a case where they're basically just not saying anything? They've said absolutely nothing, and I've sent them many times uh, emails with links, images, information. They have absolutely refused to respond. And and you mentioned earlier, and, and I and 
I should ask that question, and, and it's one of the ones we, we talked about off the air, but uh, it, you would think that NASA needs a boost, and everybody is talking about the failures of NASA. I mean, NASA has, has I mean, and it's actually just embarrassing, actually, to me as an American. They have the worst public relations department of anything that I've ever seen before. Oh, I've been blown away, and especially, and even recently, I mean, they have these just bizarre stories about, uh, you know, that we're going to try to get back to the moon in 18 years or something like this. And I'm thinking, what the hell are they talking about? We, we, something that we've done, you know, that we did uh, nearly 40 years ago now, 35 years ago, uh, we've been landing craft on planets outside of our uh, the orbit of the moon for many years now. We've had tremendous. Uh, we've had failures and we've had great successes, but I mean, just it just seems ludicrous to me to to make a big project out of going back to the moon and that we couldn't. Uh, it just seems like I mean, I have a very difficult time uh, trusting NASA because I think something's going on. I just don't buy it. Oh, I guarantee you, if if uh, private individuals had about a half billion to a billion dollars, we'd be there already. Oh yeah, I mean, it would be a joke to go to the moon anymore. It seems like, and I think that it it amazes me that we haven't. Uh, that we haven't already been walking around on Mars, because really, uh, from a technical standpoint, and again, uh, I have a little bit of a math- mathematic background, but uh, I, I don't claim to know celestial mechanics, uh, you know, perfectly. But uh, technically, it doesn't seem like it's that much more difficult to land on Mars than it is to land on the Moon. I mean, I mean, the, the actually, it's simpler to land on Mars yeah. because there's an atmosphere to help you shed some of your velocity right. and make a softer landing. Right, and the and the technology involved and the way you do it is basically the same. It's just you're aiming at a different target. I mean, that's right. So yeah, I mean, it's, it seems just ridiculous that uh, that hasn't happened yet. So I don't know. Something seems to be going on, but we let's not worry about that for now. Let's let's continue talking about more of the more of the evidence and more of the things that are happening. Absolutely. So. In fact, now if you'll scroll down near the bottom of that page, I'm going to show you something that you might not have seen. Everybody who knows anything about dinosaurs. All right, which page? Let's clarify which page we're, we're on. The again. same uh, the same page with the markings that all the fossils have on them. Why don't you give me that uh, so I can give and it to the guests one more time or to the uh, listeners one more time? Yes, if you go to the Xenotech homepage. Okay. And you go to the proof of fossils null criterion. Right. There's a line directly below it that says a quick listing of some obvious features. And at right. the end of it, the word here is the link you click. Right and it will take you directly to that page with fossils and their markings on it. Right, okay. All right, so we're going to go all the way down to the bottom of that page. Right, just about to the bottom. Scroll up a little bit above the handprint pattern. Yes, got it, right to the right there. You will see what looks like a little round bug. And you will see the marking to the left. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. The fossil to the right, just as clear as it can possibly be. That is a trilobite. Trilobites were more or less the... the, um, the forerunners before the horseshoe crab, the spiders, the crustaceans, the crabs, you know, all of those things that exist in the ocean. Trilobites were very simple, primitive crustaceans. They were once one of the most prolific species, or I should say types of organisms on Earth. They died out about 200 million years ago, but they lived half a billion years ago to 200 million years ago. Here we have a trilobite fossil on Mars. In fact, I've got a page with about a dozen different trilobite fossils on it. This is just one of many. But the reason I point this one out is as you look at it, it's very clearly symmetrical. Right and left halves, you can see the head, the eyes, the lobes. You can see every feature. That's a trifolite. You know, and the other implication, which is just astonishing, is that uh, at least 
from from the way it looks, and of course there hasn't been analysis done of uh, composition or that sort of thing. But it's but it's interesting to note that the same types of life forms are evolving, uh, you know, on other worlds. Yeah, on right. other worlds. I mean, that means maybe our, our ideas of life, uh, maybe it's not as in other words, maybe there's, a, there's an actual pattern that, that nature sort of typically follows. Well, now, that's a very interesting point, and one that I can refute pretty soundly. Okay. It isn't that there are specific patterns that exist that are programmed to be uh, showing up here and there in evolution. What it is, is these are the best solutions based on the environment they live in. Mm. For instance, and ah, I can give you very yes. good examples of this. In North America, we have cactus plants. In Europe, cactuses don't exist. They have spurges. Hmm. It's a completely different organism that takes the same form and fills the same niche. In Australia, there are dingoes. In the West, there are coyotes. They're not related at all, but they look identical. Dingoes are marsupials, but they fill the same ecological niche. Um, There are mammals that look like tigers and bears that live in Australia, but they're marsupials. They're not related to them at all but they look so much like them, you would mistake them for those organisms. Right, right, right. And the reason is your form and your function are determined by your environment. They work hand in hand. On a different planet, yes, you'll find some wildly different alien organisms. Just as the kangaroo only exists in Australia, its equivalent is the rabbit in other places in the world. Right. They fill the same niche, but they have a wildly different form but we still recognize the same job as being done, and they both hop. That's their locomotion. Isn't that interesting? On Mars, we see the same sorts of life forms because the same conditions existed and the same opportunities existed for those organisms to find a living. Okay, so it's environmentally uh, controlled. It is all determined by environment. The intelligent design debate is really a red herring. It doesn't work. Well, gosh, I got to tell you, there's a, I, I made a, I made a comment about that at the beginning of the program before I had you on the air. I was at uh, I was at a three day sort of super intense conference in in uh, uh, at the University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth uh, over the weekend, just Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I, I actually got back uh, tonight. I I called you from the airport and I drove back from St. Louis and barely got here in time to do the show. That's why I was sort of out of out of sorts a little bit. But at any rate, one of the one of the women who presented at uh, the conference is a, uh, a doctor, a professor of geosciences at the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth. Her name is uh, Dr. Lynn Margulis, and she has done astonishing work on uh, uh, basically showing evolution in action uh, that she has filmed under a microscope uh, in the laboratory and has just un- unveiled some just shocking things. Uh, that, that, that And I made the comment that, that this intelligent design uh, versus or creationism versus evolution. I've, uh, I've I've always thought that they can coexist, quite frankly. But uh, but there is obviously evolution in action, and this woman has done amazing uh, things to prove it. Oh, there's no doubt about that. We use the forces of evolution all the time, even though we may not be aware of it. Consider this: How many times have you been out in the woods and found a wild squash or string bean plant or a wild tomato plant? Mm-hmm. You don't see. You them. don't do it. Yeah. And the reason is. Those are organisms that we have modified. We've genetically engineered them by selective breeding over the many thousands of years. Human foods exist with human beings because we produced them. Mm. (laughs) Now, look at organisms uh, such as bacteria. 
we forced them to evolve in the laboratory to make new forms all the time. Right. One of the pioneers of the work was Chakrabarty, Dr. Chakrabarty. He engineered an organism that would eat a defoliant, and he got it to the point where it could live on nothing but that defoliant if it had to. Right, and we know, uh, as a matter of fact, that all of the all of the antibiotics that we're introducing into the biosphere, either through uh, ingestion by human beings and then excretion into the environment, mu much of that comes out in its original form and is not metabolized by the body. And then we have effluent that comes off from manufacturing plants uh, that affects bacteria that are in the biosphere. And what has been the result of that? An, evo uh, an, uh, an evolution of bacteria that are now uh, immune to these particular uh, uh, antibiotics, etc. That's correct, because the antibiotics will effectively cripple some of the organisms and outright kill some of the others. But the ones who have minor variations in their genes mm -hmm. or in their implementation of those genes will survive. And though that means that their offspring will carry that resistance. Right. And after a few thousand generations, which can happen in the course of a couple of weeks, you now have an organism that has evolved in real time that matches its ability to survive against your ability to poison it with an uh, antibiotic. Yeah, yeah, amazing stuff. Okay, well, um, we're going to have to get back to the current life question because that is a biggie. Uh, and Indeed it is. All right, well, we're about uh, 25, 26 after the hour here, and uh, so let's take one last break, and we will... Uh, come back and talk a little bit more about this stuff. My guest is Sir Charles Schultz. Uh, done some, uh, has done and is doing amazing research. And, you know, he has a lot of other things that he's into as well, other than the planet Mars. But this is just so uh, interesting and important, I think, that I want to spend the whole program uh, on the Mars thing tonight. We'll have him on the program again, uh, hopefully, if he'll be kind enough to, jo uh, enough to join us, and we'll talk about some of the other things that he's involved in. But uh, anyway, amazing stuff from Sir Charles Schultz. Uh, the address of his website is www.xenotechresearch.com, and it's Xeno with an X. All right, this is Mike, and uh, we will be back in just a minute. In the meantime, uh, Planet Telex, Radiohead on KOPN Radio Orbit.
by Radiohead Planet Telex on Radio Orbit. This is Mike Hagan, and you're listening to it on KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. All right, we've been talking with Sir Charles Schultz of Xenotech Research for the last hour and a half. We're going to continue along with him. And if you're just joining us, uh, catch up real quick. Get on over to xenotechresearch.com and uh, click through a little bit. And uh, I can tell you that the water evidence and the fossil evidence are uh, good places to start, but you could spend a whole lot of time on the site. At any rate, we have lots of things to talk about. Water, uh, past life, possible current life. What else, uh, Sir Charles? Well, you know, I think the current life issue is one of the biggest things because what people really want to know is where are these organisms and is there anything alive today? Right. One of the things that's most important is if there is something alive, and we bring a sample back, we, re- we risk contaminating our planet with an organism that doesn't exist here normally. Right, we get the now, whole and- Andromeda strain idea. And that's possible. Now it may be nothing, or it may be very dangerous. We don't have a way of knowing, but I don't think it's worth a risk. Hmm. And a good place to, to make an argument for this case is the cane toad, or the love bug, or any of the, you know, the zebra mussel, or the walking catfish. Uh, fire ants or African honeybees, we can think of dozens of organisms that have been imported into an area where they were not native, and in no case can I think of a case where it got better (laughs) because of an imported organism. (laughs) You know, we're not sitting around going, boy, I'm glad we've got those now. (laughs) Yeah, I love those Africanized uh, killer bees. So. So it's very important to recognize that any chance of bringing an organism back from Mars that might contaminate our biosphere means that we shouldn't take that risk, that we should be extremely careful about it. Now, one of the things that I suggest is if we really want to bring samples back, then this would be a good reason to have a base on the moon so we can do the analysis there Hmm. and not expose the rest of the planet to it. Again, it's a miracle that we don't have bases on the moon. And, in fact, there are some people that say that we do, but it's all covert stuff. But uh, we certainly don't have any that we know about and that, that are doing any research that's doing us any good. Well, and that's true. You know, it's, it's difficult to, um, to make an argument with something that you don't have any really good, strong evidence of. Exactly. So, you know, that would be something, you know, I'm not even going to to step into the conspiracy or secret basis thing or any of those things. I want to stick with material that people can see and prove or disprove for themselves. All right, well, let's continue to do that then. Okay. One of the things that I've discovered just recently, and it turns out there's been a lot of work done by other people as well, is something that appears to be life that is present on Mars right now, and it's something called desert varnish. Hmm. When you look at rocks in a desert, a very arid place on the earth, for instance, you will often discover that the rocks have a bluish or grayish um, coating at the upper edge where the wind blows over the rock. Right, okay. This is desert varnish. Huh. And when they studied it, they discovered that it was, it was made by organisms that trap bits of dust and minerals in the wind, particularly uh, things like magnesium, molybdenum, or manganese. Manganese is the big one. Manganese metal oxidizes to a blue-black state. If you've ever opened an old flashlight battery, the rechargeable batteries, they have that black paste inside them. Exactly. That's manganese dioxide, okay? And so some people have seen it there. Well, this film of uh, material in the rock, this desert varnish, 
is an oxide of this metal manganese, and it's formed in only one manner, and that's through biology. Microorganisms form it. So this is a smoking gun of sorts. Right. Now, the interesting thing is, many of the images from Mars show desert varnish on the rocks. And once again, the only known mechanism for the formation of desert varnish is biology. My God. There's never been a single case of desert varnish on Earth shown not to be the result of biology. Holy cow. Now, to take this just a step further, many of the Martian meteorites that have arrived on Earth and have been researched show desert varnish on them. And, in fact, you can buy some of these pieces. They're quite expensive, but you can buy them on the open market. Huh. The ALH84001 meteorite, the one they felt had Martian fossils in it, has a coating of desert varnish on it. Wow. Now, how... How can I argue that this didn't form on Earth after it arrived? That's very simple. The rock was formed, was found in Antarctica. It was on an ice sheet. Right. There were no desert varnish organisms present to infect it. Therefore, what it has, it brought with it from Mars. Hmm. Now, here's another interesting point. The analysis of desert varnish often shows that it has amino acids, certain chemicals of life, that are mirror images, stereoisomers of the amino acids that life on Earth uses. In other words, these chemicals are essentially backwards. They wouldn't be produced by organisms on Earth because they don't have the means to do it. Hmm. So it's quite possible that desert varnish on Earth might have been carried here on a meteorite from Mars. And it could be a representative sample of something that lives on Mars. Wow. Now, it doesn't mean that all cases of desert varnish would have been imported. It's quite possible that the organisms arose on both planets. Hmm. But the indications of backwards amino acids in desert varnish samples indicates that in at least some cases, they might be imported organisms from Mars that have taken root here on Earth and are doing quite well. Yeah, you know, and, and, and again, that's not, that's not as far out as some people might think, This the idea of of panspermia, I think is what the uh, technical term is of, of things like that. But we've there have been theories that go way back that that, that uh, uh, material deposited on the planet by comets and bodies that have come from much further away than Mars uh, that have uh, uh, sort of planted the seeds of life on this planet. So certainly something that's within the realm of uh, of discussion. Well, it certainly is. And an interesting note is that they have just verified that the building blocks of life, the chemistry of life, exist everywhere that they've looked in our galaxy. Hmm, so, okay. Absolutely everywhere. All right, so that brings up uh, other planets in our system, other planets in the galaxy. We now have a, a host of... It's interesting, you know, just a couple of years ago, the guys out in California uh, discovered, quote-unquote, uh, actually identified the first extrasolar uh, planet, and they've just been coming fast and furious since then. There have been many, many, many discovered. And uh, what are the implications of, of, of your findings with regard to these, uh, these new bodies that we're seeing now all around the galaxy? Well, you know, it's interesting. For many years, people theorized that other planets ought to exist around other stars. And now we have a confirmation of that. In the beginning, the only ones that they could easily detect were those that were large enough and massive enough to cause the star they orbit to wobble slightly. Think about if you had, uh, let's say, a bucket full of sand on a cord and you swung it around you. <laughs> okay. You would be leaning backwards 
the balance, the pull of that bucket as mm. you swung it around. Okay. Correct? Right, right. A planet orbiting a star does the same thing. In fact, a moon orbiting a planet does it as well. The masses of the two orbit around a center of mass. So when a planet orbits a star, the star wobbles slightly in its movement. Now, that's a very, very subtle effect, and it's, can, it can be very difficult to detect. And so, However, let, let me ask you, let me jump in real quick and ask you a sure, quick one, just so I'm clear. And so the moon orbiting the Earth would have the same effect on the Earth, would give the Earth a little bit of a wobble. That's right. The Earth wobbles back and forth as the moon moves around it. And is that, I, I, this may be, uh, uh, we're a little off a, a tangent, but, and, and that is directly related to this, the, the so-called precession of the equinox. Uh, yes, it is. That you wobble. see, one of the interesting things here is the moon stabilizes the Earth's axis so it doesn't tumble like a gyroscope sometimes uh, does. Okay. Mars doesn't have a moon, and its axis, its tilt of its axis can tumble uh, significantly. Really? Yes, indeed. Uh, the Earth's pole does trace out a small circle over many thousands of years mm. so that right now the North Star is the closest star to our, our polar axis and later on the North Star won't be anywhere near it. Hmm. So over time, you can see that the pole of the Earth, the North Pole of the Earth and the South Pole, point in slightly different portions of the sky. Okay. But the, but the Moon's orbit helps stabilize that. Okay. It, it dampens down the, the activity. All right, so back to so, these other planets. So, so what do we think about what, what else is going on out there? Well, the first ones they discovered, of course, were very large, like Jupiter or larger. But okay. now we've got the ability to detect much smaller planets, much more like the Earth. Hmm. And so far, they found a handful of worlds that may be comparable in size and mass to our own planet. Now it's necessary to detect if they're at the proper distance from their star for life to exist. But you see, this is another interesting point. We often thought in times past that the Earth was at just the right distance from our sun, for liquid water to exist. We thought that Mars was too far out and too cold and Venus was too near the sun. Hmm. Well, it's true that Venus is pretty hot and dry right now, but in times past it appears to have also had oceans. Interesting. But Mars itself is definitely within the life-supporting zone of our planet because it does indeed have fossils on it. Right, and, and, and you mentioned earlier that, uh, that there are sometimes pretty balmy temperatures at certain places and times. That's correct. So what this indicates is we felt in the past that the life-supporting zone or the Goldilocks zone around a star was very narrow. Hmm. Now we know that it's many millions of miles wide. So suddenly, the possibilities explode. Suddenly we have the ability to say, you know, maybe it's 10 or 20 or 50 times more likely right. than we thought that we'll find a planet that can support life. Yeah, you know, and, and it really becomes interesting when you think about the implications of what we've been discussing earlier. In other words, this idea that similar, similar life forms develop under similar conditions. So we're only talking now about those particular conditions. Imagine the possibilities of life that, uh, that can develop under other conditions. Again, we have to get out of our own little anthropocentric box. And well, I can give you a very good example of that. Let's say you had a sun that was smaller than our own. So that the planet that supports life would have to be much closer to it. Okay. One of the interesting effects would be the planet could end up locked tidally to the sun so that maybe one face was always toward that star. Hmm. Or maybe the planet turned in, let's say, two weeks or a month okay. rather than 24 hours. Right, right, okay. If a planet had, let's say, a one-month day cycle because it was close to its star and 
tidally locked, what would that do to organisms? Imagine if you had one part of the, part of the planet that was blistering hot <laughs> facing the sun and one part of the planet that was frozen eternally on the night side. Okay. And then you'd have a temperate zone running all the way around the middle where it was twilight. Yeah. What an interesting type of world that would be. Gosh. It would be an eternal twilight running around a band around the day side. <laughs> or perhaps a planet that uh, turns on its axis so that uh, a zone of freezing moves around it in a period of a month and a zone of heat moves around it in a period of a month, and organisms would have to be on the move all the, all time, the time just to survive. Yeah, I mean, just... You can see there's some interesting implications sure, there. Sure, I mean, use your imagination, you know? And, but all of it can easily be compared to the laws of physics and see... We can see if it's possible or not. Hmm, all right. And interesting that we sort of come full circle because that's how this all began with you trying to model this whole thing. Indeed, you know, and that's the whole thing right there. If you understand the rules, it's very easy to see if a system can be made to work. Sometimes, though, the systems become so complicated that we can't easily see the answers. Hmm. And in astronomy, that's been the case. We didn't have enough data to work with. Right. Now we have a great deal more information. And at this point, we can expect that we might find life in one other place in our solar system. And that would very likely be the moon of Jupiter, known as Europa. Right, right. Apparently there's because lots of water appears, there, huh? That's right. It appears to have an ocean underneath the ice. In fact, there are a couple of moons that appear to exhibit pockets of water under the ice. So we may find that there are bacteria or uh, organic uh, compounds or, or, I don't know, it's difficult to say without actually going there. Right. But I do expect it's quite likely we could find at least bacterial life there. Gosh, you know, and, and I've, I've had a deep interest in marine biology for, for a large part of my life, and I know a lot about uh, dolphins and whales. And let me tell you, if, if, if there's life that begins to evolve in water and it evolves any way the way it did here, there's the possibility of intelligent creatures swimming around in some of these places. That's right. And, you know, that brings up another very interesting point. There is an interesting thing called the Fermi Paradox, you know, why is it quiet? Yes. Why don't we hear our neighbors yes. blasting radio and TV waves everywhere? Mm. It may well be that most planets with life either undergo the Mars problem, where they lose a lot of atmosphere and development doesn't get very far, or they might be water worlds, where mm. there could be many, many different types of dolphin-like species, but restricted to the oceans and unable to come up on dry land because it might not exist. Hmm. They wouldn't have the ability to create fire and chemistry and electricity and metals, hmm. radio telescopes, right, and, and we never technology. hear from them. Right, right, right. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Well, you, you, you just mentioned uh, Mars lost its atmosphere. Do we have any idea how that happened? Yes, in fact, we do. It's a very simple process. The planet Mars has a very small core and not a whole lot of gravity. Things on Mars would weigh only 38% as much as they do on the Earth. Now, what keeps your atmosphere on your planet? And that's gravitation. Right. Because Mars has very weak gravity compared to the Earth, it lost its atmosphere to space. We're losing it all the time. Mm. But you see, we have a second advantage that Mars doesn't have other than our gravitational field, and that's our volcanic activity. The Earth has a huge nickel-iron core, and it is heated internally by radioactive materials decaying. Mm -hmm. This drives our volcanoes and our plate tectonics, and it renews our atmospheres and keeps the water flooding into our oceans from underground. So these underground sources of water and air 
continue to replenish our environment right, even right. as it's being lost. Right. Along with the biosystem on the surface as well, huh? That's right. And Mars doesn't have that advantage. Its core, while it still is probably molten, it's small and it's cooling rapidly. I see. Okay, well, my gosh, amazing stuff, amazing stuff. So I guess the question then, I have a question again about these extrasolar planets. What do we think that they are made of? I mean, if we, uh, one of the things that I'm learning to accept is that the, the universe is apparently self-similar. It's fractal. And lots of things that we thought were different probably are not. They're just on different scales. And so if... If we're seeing similar developments uh, of and the way planets are formed in our local uh, neck of the woods here, is it a reasonable assumption that at least somewhere else in other galaxies or in our galaxy that there are other worlds that that are consisted of the same uh, compounds and chemicals that might uh, that might point toward the development of similar similar life forms? Actually, yes, there is. You see, one of the things we have the advantage of with a radio telescope is we can analyze the signatures of the molecules of dust and gas in space, and we can identify them. This can also be done for in, in other manners, but we know what those dust and gas clouds, the nebula, are made of. And it turns out they're made of iron and silicates and magnesium and methane and ammonia and hydrogen, the same stuff that our nebula was made of. Amazing. And if you think about it, the rules of chemistry and the rules of physics are the same everywhere in the universe as far as we've been able to determine. And if we're given those facts, we have to conclude that the formation of planets around other suns would be probably identical in concept to the formation of planets in our solar system. So there's no reason to think that they would be any different, really. Right, and in fact, uh, I mean, if, if you listen to the scientists themselves, they say everything evolved from this uh, one point in space that was the Big Bang and everything came from, you know, something the size of, of, of a proton or some piddly distance like that. But at any rate, uh, if everything came from the same source in that manner, why wouldn't it all be similar? And that's a very good point, and that is believed to be the case. Fascinating. Okay, well, so let me, we, we've got about five more minutes here, so let me ask you something. Okay. All, all of these implications uh, to me seem really, really important, and the fact that they're not being paid attention to is, is, is something that just blows me away. And so I, I'm, I'm forced back to history and 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 not not only that, just my own experience doing this radio program. You know, when you talk to people who are on the fringe all the time, uh, you find out that there is, uh, quite frankly, uh, censorship and and blacklisting and this sort of thing. I have a friend whose name is Paul Laviolette, whose work you may be familiar with. Uh, Dr. Paul Laviolette, uh, he is. Uh, an amazing astrophysicist, but at any rate, uh, there are lots and lots of guys out there and girls who, if they push it too hard and uh, go places where, for whatever reason, uh, the establishment doesn't want to go, it, it is very difficult to move that information forward. Well, yes, it is. And the thing is, you can face not only censure, but loss of academic credentials yes. and blackballing. And people say, oh, no, that doesn't happen. But the fact is, it does. Certainly. And so, absolutely, it's known today that many of the more august committees who do review, peer review, and publication have actually um, censored certain materials and have even gone so far as 
to push materials that are untrue, and mm. it's only been discovered after the fact. Amazing. So the peer review process itself is in no way a guarantee that you're going to get reasonable, good, or accurate material. It's, it's a strong move in the right direction in many cases, but it's made of fallible human beings, and they have their own beliefs and agendas, and if something doesn't strike them quite right, they'll fight to the bitter end. Not to face it. And I don't know why that is. It's just human psychology. Right, right. Okay, well, one of the things, and, I, and again, i got to mention it because you've done a great job here with this, and I want I, I commend you, and I, and I love the way that you've set up the homepage where you have it set up as a blog where uh, you put your evidence up, which is uh, astonishing, and then you invite other people to look at it. And it's a way of, uh, it's a way of leapfrogging uh, the the established method of, of peer review, but still do peer review. Well, absolutely. People aren't idiots, and many of them have great expertise in different fields. Oh, yeah. And the information that I present is so clear that a child can recognize it. Oh, these fossils are a, something it, else. I mean, It's a very uncomfortable thought that somebody who's gone through many years of college to learn something about astronomy or physics or chemistry cannot recognize a photograph of mud. So, to me, that's a very disturbing thought. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I think so, too. You show these to any child, and they'll tell you what they're seeing right away. Amazing. All right, so what's next? What, uh, what, uh, the, I guess that becomes the question. How do we, what can we do uh, to move this information forward? You know, how do, we, well, how do we get more people interested? How do we get more people involved? And, and, and what are you doing, and what's, your, what, what's on the agenda? Well, clearly the research will continue because this is the biggest thing I've ever done, and I don't think I'll ever do anything any larger, to tell you the truth. Hmm. Um, I am writing a book. It's nearly finished, and it will be published very soon. Um, I may go ahead and publish this as an e-book so that it can get out there very rapidly. Mm-hmm. I've done many radio shows in different venues, and I can, I can estimate that some tens of millions of people have heard the information at this point. Right. Whether they believe it or not you know, is another issue. But everybody can look for themselves. I'm going to continue to do as much exposure as I can, and I know that it's grow it's growing because many people contact me on a daily basis with more information, things that they have found. Right. So the, the you know the cat is out of the bag, and there's no way you can go backwards from here. The information is out there, and it's reaching a point where pretty soon there's going to be a tipping point or a critical mass sort of event. And it's going to hit them right in the face, and they're going to be asked some very uncomfortable questions. You know, the established group of scientists who make these proclaimed uh, proclamations about what is or isn't on Mars are going to be faced with some issues that they're going to have to answer. I mean, look at what uh, Stephen Squires said when the airbags hit the soil. He said, gee, it looks like mud, but it can't be. (laughs) Well, why can't it be? Why can't it be? Well, because he's been told for 40 years that there's no water on Mars. Well, that's patently false. It's very obviously false. Wow. All right. Well, look, it has been, uh, believe it or not, we are uh, two hours into this thing already, and it has been fascinating. And I want to thank you so much for uh, uh, for spending the time with me and, and, and the listeners tonight because it's just been a wonderful and informative show, and I thank you for, a whole lot for being here. Well, I really enjoyed it, and I'll uh, be very happy to do another show in the future with you. All right, great. Well, do me a favor. Stick around on the line for just a minute, and uh, I'm going to get some music on here, and I'll, uh, I'll be back at you in just a second, okay? Okay, great. Thank you. All right, everybody. That was uh, Sir Charles Schultz III, uh, an amazing researcher who has done uh, some work uh, on the 
evidence brought about by our own space program, uh, his analysis of these photographs and images is just astonishing, and you can see this stuff for yourself, but there are big questions to be brought forth about what's going on on the planet Mars. All right, this is Mike, and uh, you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. We'll be back next week. Uh, I'm not sure what I'm going to do next week. I'm going to try to get one of the women uh, that I met at the Bioneers Conference uh, this last weekend to do a quick show. If not, we'll put something together in the meantime. But uh, a big thanks again one more time to Sir Charles Schultz. You can check him out at xenotechresearch.com. And uh, you can always get to his site now from mine at radioorbit.com. And we'll have this interview up on the web uh, within 24, 36 hours, something like that, so everybody else out there in cyberspace can get a listen and make their own uh, decisions about what they're hearing. So, okay, thanks again for listening, as always. Uh, I appreciate it. Uh, Comments to orbitradio at AOL.com. And we'll catch you all next week. Stick around for the boogeyman. He'll be back. Uh, he'll be back with you in about uh, in about five. All right, this is Mike, Radio Orbit, signing off, KOPN 89.5 FM. We'll finish things off with the Tragically Hip. This is uh, Insomniacs of the World. Good night.